Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan or occasional observer. We hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. My guest today is one of my closest mentors and bears the greatest responsibility for influencing my decision to stay in Birmingham, Alabama and join Andrew's practice. So needless to say, I owe him a great deal of gratitude for his loyalty, uh, his trust and confidence and support in me at the start of my career. It's an absolute honor for me to introduce Dr. Jeff Dugas, who is an orthopedic surgeon and managing partner and co-founder of the Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center here in Birmingham, Alabama. Dr. Dugas completed his sports medicine fellowship in Birmingham under the tutelage of the world-famous Dr. James Andrews, quickly set himself apart from his peers, enough so to warrant the trust of Dr. Andrews, who asked him to stay in Birmingham as a partner. Dr. Dugas agreed, and alongside his fellowship classmate, Dr. Lyle Kane, uh, the two dear friends became the heir apparent to the Andrews legacy. Dr. Dugas is uh, very distinguished in uh, the area of sports medicine, specializing in surgery of the knee, shoulder, and elbow, and has operated on all types of athletes at the highest levels of the elite Olympic and professional competition. Uh, he is a longtime physician of Troy University, numerous local high schools, uh, the associate team physician for the Chicago White Sox affiliate Birmingham Barons, where Michael Jordan played, if you all caught Last Dance, uh, which was great to see. And he's also the medical director for USA Cheer, the associate medical director and surgeon for the WWE, serves on the board of trustees for the American Baseball Foundation and the American Sports Medicine Institute, and is the fellowship program director of the ASMI Sports Medicine Orthopedic Fellowship, uh, responsible for training sports medicine surgeons of the highest caliber. Dr. Dugas has authored over 75 peer-reviewed publications, numerous book chapters, and presented countless times at national uh, orthopedic meetings. This experience on the field and in the operating room with the research uh, fueled his innovative spirit. And Dr. Dugas is one of the pioneers of the UCL repair, an alternative to the Tommy John surgery with a more rapid return to play, which now has nearly over five years of great results, which we'll get into a little bit later today as well. Finally, with all his extra time, Dr. Dugas satiated his entrepreneurial spirit and craving by starting a local distillery, the first in uh, Birmingham and I believe the state of Alabama, crafting fine whiskey, liquors, wine, beer uh, under the name of Dread River. So without further ado, the multifaceted and talented Dr. Jeff Dugas. Welcome. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, the highest caliber 
training. That's how we get here. <laughs> Sometimes you get lucky, right? No, we're better, yeah. we're better than that. I kind of like to start off getting an understanding of you know where our guests come from. So as I understand it, you were born in, and I don't even know how to say this town. But Schenectady. There we go. Schenectady. I'll save you the phonetic. Thank uh, you. Yeah, Schenectady, New York. Yeah, so it's, that's upstate, correct? It is upstate. Very ethnic part of New York. Uh, my family lived in the Mohawk Valley, which is a very, I would say, um, challenged part of New York, upstate New York, with a lot of ethnicity to it. My mom is from a large Italian family. I get a lot of my personality and a lot of my uh, family background from the Italian world. And uh, my dad is French-Canadian background. And um, so they grew up on the same street, went to the same school, have known each other since they were kindergartners. Gotcha. So they, they'd been there for a, a, quite a they'd while. been there their whole lives, yeah. Um, but you didn't stay there, correct? No, we moved to Charlotte when I was three. My dad, I tell people the best day of my life was probably the day my dad decided to move us to Charlotte when I was three and, and get our family out of that environment. Um, my sister had just been born and my younger brother was born in Charlotte. So Charlotte always became kind of home base. We were in Charlotte, then we were in New Jersey, in Ohio, Charlotte, Michigan, Charlotte, New York, Charlotte. Gotcha. So my dad worked for the same company the whole time, and we just okay. moved around a lot. Gotcha. And what prompted that move? Was it his work? Was it, it was just... work, yeah. Okay. He had a PhD in organic chemistry and got a job uh, working okay. for a uh, chemical company called Selenese. And when I was born, and he was doing benzene research. Oh, really? Yeah. So he had, hands in his, he had his hands in the most powerful carcinogen known to man, and he thought maybe that was a bad idea. Yeah. So he asked for a sales job. He gets an entry-level sales job with the same company, and they offered him a chance to move to Charlotte. Gotcha. And he ended up retiring from the company uh, in a C-level position, the chief global marketing development officer, and uh, he had a big job at the gotcha. end. So, um, and so would you say that, that his involvement in chemical engineering is kind of what sparked your desire to go into that, or is that separate? No, I hated organic chemistry <laughs> with a passion. It was probably my worst subject. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he spouts that stuff off like it's nothing, you know. He, he's a bright guy. I, I, my chemical engineering thing was actually a family friend. So his years working for the company, he recruited at NC State and got to know a guy named Dr. Hal Hoffenberg. Yeah. And Hal was a kind of family friend. I called him Uncle Hal. And um, when I was looking at colleges, Uncle Hal said, you know, you should do chemical engineering. You're good at this stuff. And if you can do that, all doors will be open to you. If you can succeed at that, nobody will say no to you. It doesn't matter whether it's business school, law school, med school, professional school, whatever, job. And you'd have a pretty good ladder. The incomes are the highest coming out of college. And and if you can do it, and he said, I don't know if you can do it, but if you can do it, this will put you on the path. Gotcha. And I think to this day, that was some of the best advice I ever got. It, yeah. it opened every door. Yeah. Well, I always thought that was interesting because both you and Lyle wow. Kane yeah, we had the same. both came separate places, didn't have any yeah. con- connection until your fellowship both did chemical engineering. Yeah, we met the first day of fellowship and we had that same background. We both did high volume residencies and our wives looked like they could be twin sisters, which is, and, and they're very good friends. Yeah. So we, we, we hit it off day one. That's awesome. And we've been side by side for 21 yeah. years. You know? Well, I look forward to getting into that as well. <laughs> and because uh, I know that there's a lot of stories there. But, you know, and going back to kind of growing up, I assume baseball was your primary sport. Yeah, I mean, I played them all, but baseball was the one I loved the most. I, I spent a lot of time in places with my grandparents. My grandfather's watching Yankees games in the summers and um, listening to them on radios and things. So I was a diehard pinstripe fan. Gotcha. And uh, baseball was just always my thing. My dad coached and, you know, we, we did that yeah. stuff together. So what was it about baseball in particular that kind of drew you to that sport as opposed to others? I, I think it was probably the sport I was best at yeah. um, being a five foot nine 
middle-sized person. I was I, interestingly when I was a freshman in high school, I was five nine, about one hundred and seventy-five pounds, and I was on the varsity football team as like the third-string <laughs> fullback because they thought I was going to be six-two and two-thirty. Yeah, I didn't hit two-thirty until much later in life, but I never hit six-two. So um, I, I quit football after my sophomore year because yeah. I just wasn't big enough to yeah. play. Gotcha. And um, I kind of maxed it out after size-wise after freshman or sophomore year. So baseball just kind of became basketball certainly wasn't going to happen yeah. and uh i wasn't fast enough to play the point and, and i wasn't big enough to play anywhere else so baseball was just kind of where it ended what position did you play in the end i was a pitcher i always had a pretty good arm and i could throw strikes so my yeah. thing was i could throw it anywhere i probably maxed out at 85 i mean okay. i probably never threw a ball harder than 85 miles an hour yeah. but i could throw that thing anywhere i wanted to and I had some arm side run on it and everything moved. And I was really hard to hit after guys who threw really hard because okay. everything moved and they would spin themselves into the ground trying to hit it. So uh. um, I was pretty good in the middle. I could I could start a game and go a couple times to the batting order. And, you know, but you know, by the time a good team gets third time through, they were they were hitting yeah. pretty good. So, so I, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. I, having known you over the last couple of years, that, that probably set the stage kind of for not only your experience at NC State where you played mm -hmm. baseball, but I think also kind of going forward as far as your career because you deal a lot yeah. with baseball. But with NC State, what was it about that school? Was it the chemical engineering? Was it the fact that you got to play sports there, a combination? What 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 brought so you to NC to State? To be clear, I walked on okay. and, and played. I didn't and I didn't play very much either. I was okay. a pretty pedestrian. I threw a lot of batting practice. Okay. I was on the team. but Yeah. Lyle told me that you, you got to throw to Will Clark. Yeah, I might have thrown a ball to Will Clark that's still circling the uh, orbiting <laughs> the earth. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a great experience being at NC State. I wanted to go back south. I, I graduated from high school in Ohio. Chemical engineering seemed to fit for me, and I started it not really knowing what that was going to be. But I still think that every day my engineering background helps me in problem solving. And it's not just the mechanics of orthopedics or an OR problem. It may be a, an office problem or a personal problem or a business problem. I think the ability to solve problems, which is really what engineering teaches you, especially on the chemical engineering side, which is really process engineering, I'm pretty good when it comes to solving problems, the process of solving problems. I think it's just something that I learned and have continued with. So I'm very thankful for that background. I cannot tell you anything about the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> I can't tell you anything about chemical transport processes, but I can tell you that I can solve problems with the best of them. So. Yeah, I'm still very thankful for that. And I think it was great training. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I think looking back, I went to Notre Dame and did pre-med. And yeah. it really was because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Right. And But in my closed-mindedness, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And I think the idea of doing an engineering degree, whether it's chemical or mechanical, I agree with you. I think that the ability to understand and learn how to problem solve is, is huge. And not that you have to do that, but if I had it, you know, to do it over again, I'd probably do an engineering degree. You know, I think it's a big, it's a big risk because it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I tell people all the time, four years of medical school was way easier than four years of chemical engineering. Yeah. I, and not that it was easy. It was yeah. just medical school, as you know, is a grind. It's mm -hmm. you're learning the language of medicine. You're learning what kind of doctor you want to be. You're doing these rotations and figuring out how to function in a hospital and right. just how the world of medicine works. But you don't really learn much about being a doctor in no. terms of the kind of doctor you're going to be. You might do one rotation, but you're not learning how to be an orthopedic surgeon in medical school. No. And and so engineering was not the best training in terms of pre-med so much. And I, I had to learn the language of medicine, but that wasn't complex or hard. It was just a lot. Yeah. 
And the engineering part of it was complex and hard. It, yeah. it, it took time to learn to be 50% right and think you were okay. Yeah. You know, and more about the process than the answer and gotcha. stuff like that. So, and at what point do you think that during that training, when did you decide that you wanted to become one, one, go to medical school two become an orthopedic surgeon and three become a sports medicine physician? So I think I wanted to go to medical school going in to college. I think that was the plan going in and I kind of just stuck with it. I worked in an emergency room in Charlotte. I worked at Carolina's Medical Center. Our next door neighbor was the CEO of Carolina's Medical Center. And I asked him for an entry level job and I got a job pushing patients around, just being a patient transport tech, you know, the gotcha. lowest level, yeah. kind of one level above the candy stripe. Those are great jobs. And, and, and you learn so much, yeah. you see so many things and you get to interact with so many people. And I found that I was in the emergency room, which is kind of the melting pot of the hospital. You know, everybody goes, yeah. except for maybe dermatology. They don't, they don't show up in the ER. <laughs> They're not much. there, no. But everybody else goes to the ER, and I found that the people that I identified with, the people that I enjoyed spending time with, that I would go out you know, after work with, were the orthopedic people. Yeah. And, and I enjoyed the general surgery people, and I enjoyed some of the OBGYN people and the PDI. I mean, I enjoyed it, but the people I really felt the the draw to just personality wise was the orthopedic people. And I've always said when people have asked me this, I think that all the, all the specialties in medicine have a personality. Yes. If you find your work you like to do, you'll probably find the people you like. And if you find the people you like, you'll probably find the work you like. And I just kind of glommed onto orthopedics. There are probably some stereotypes that kind of run within the you know medical world, uh, orthopedic surgeons and sports medicine docs in particular. What, what is their sort of stereotype? You know, I, I think that probably people think we're the knuckle-dragging Neanderthals of medicine um, at times. You know, we're just the carpenters. We're just the bone doctors. And that may be true um, in some ways. We do a lot of carpentry. That's that's We are the structural engineers of the body. And, um, and therefore, we don't typically deal with life and death. We're not dealing with ICUs and well, many of us. You right. know, my, my patients tend to be healthy and, right. and, and engaged and active. But... I can tell you that what we do is very important to them in getting them back to their lives. So I do think that we are the coaches of medicine, the, the sports medicine world. I think that most of us are very collegial. We get along well. We communicate well. You know, you get a bunch of orthopedic surgeons together. They're going to enjoy each other. They're going to have fun. Um, I think we are probably a little bit less serious than other professions. We probably don't take ourselves too seriously. I think our personality curves are a little bit more on the um, just collegial side than the, we're probably a little bit on the ego side, but probably maybe not bit, as yeah. much as some others. Probably a little bit, yeah. Um, but I, I would say that we're um, we're very collegial. We're, we're yeah. a fun bunch. Yeah, I would agree. Getting into medical school, I kind of went in thinking I wanted to do orthopedics. And then I met Dr. John Fagan, and that was the that was where it started. So I get hooked up with one of the fathers of sports medicine yeah. in this country who turns out to not only be a great mentor and a great friend and somebody that I place so much value on, but he was ridiculously good at what he did. And oh. I mean, he basically was among the group of people that founded that this profession sports in medicine, this country. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away last year, but he embodied leadership and sports medicine and diagnostic acumen and great bedside manner and just everything that you think about with great physicians he embodied all of it and and i got to know him yeah. as a second and third year medical student which was just god's great gift to me it was my good luck and god's great gift to me to get to know john yeah. fagan so it sounds like he was kind of one of the influential 
I would say factors in your life that very kind of much down so. Path, yeah. You know, after my own family, I would say that John Fagan was probably the person who influenced me the most going into orthopedics and sports medicine. And then from there, I get to go to HSS, which obviously he knows Russ Warren, who's yeah. another one of the fathers of. Yeah. So you know, it's the axis of influence, and sure. Fagan calls Warren, and I get an interview at HSS, and I go up there and. A guy who was two years ahead of me in residency, Bill Ritchie, who's now the chief of trauma at HSS, mm -hmm. was there that day. And I knew Bill from when I was at Duke because he was a year or two ahead of me at Duke. And it just seemed like, I mean, I was in awe of this place. This place is the mecca. I mean, you trained at one of these places. You trained yeah. at NYU. It's, yeah. it's the, these are meccas of orthopedics. Yeah. And I just felt like I couldn't do any better than this. If I yeah. could get to this, this is as good as I could do. Yeah. And they, I get a letter, this was back in the day when they could actually tell you where you stood. And I get a letter saying I was in the top eight. And if I put them number one, I was gonna match at HSS. And yeah. I thought, holy cow, I mean, I'm gonna have yeah. this opportunity. And I, I was by no means on the top of my class at Duke. But I mean, I interviewed well and, and I enjoyed it. And that's where I really wanted to be. And I tell yeah. people that probably made the difference is I really wanted that over anywhere else yeah. of all the places I interviewed that was the one and so I get to go to HSS and then HSS I, I'm looking for a sports fellowship and I want to go back south and I want to do baseball well there's only one place that you want to do that at yeah. and the phone calls from Warren and Allcheck and all that and I end up getting to come to Andrews yeah. and and so this series of events that led to that and the shoulders of the people that I stood on to get there yeah my pedigree from John Fagan to Russ Warren to Jim Andrews and Bill Clancy, I don't know that I could stand on any bigger shoulders. I don't think you can. It's, and I think that's a huge, you know, I, you know, now that you kind of put those four um, legends, you know, in that same sort of, uh, you know, framework in terms of your uh, pedigree, like you said, what do you think sets them apart? Obviously, orthopedic surgeons across the board are all very motivated. They're all type A, they're all very smart. But here you have a group of four people who are even at that top one percent what sets them apart from others i'd say they were all leaders they all stepped out on a limb at some point and did things that other people were saying or weren't saying or hadn't come up with yet they were innovators um all of them john fagan was one of the first to publish on on the acl he wrote a book called the crucial ligaments yeah and it was one of the first textbooks on on ligament surgery in the knee russ warren popularized so many things in the knee and the shoulder, um, was one of the early influencers of team physicians. He was the Giants team doc from the 70s and, and really an on-field presence of team physician and really one of the set the standard kind of guys for, for what team physician looks like, especially with the NFL yeah. in New York with the Giants yeah. and that relationship with the family that owned the Giants. And then Andrews, was one of the fathers of arthroscopy. I mean, yeah. he was one of the first people to put a, show, a scope in, in different joints. I mean, he was around for all those kind of things. And then they all were, but Andrews really pushed that yeah. and, and was involved with all the elbow stuff and the shoulder stuff and the knee stuff and, and the athletes. And, you know, so, I mean, I think they all possess that leadership, the, the professional integrity. These guys are all, you know, they don't shy away from failure. They just do everything they can to learn from it and move on. And, yeah. They're, they're all just really innovative and, and leadership guys. That's awesome. And, yeah. and having been in this practice for the last 20 years and being next to Andrews for the first 10 of it every day, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I, I couldn't have scripted it any better than that. Yeah.
That's awesome. When I came here, you can clearly see that, that that's something that carries over into the, oh, the yeah. way that you and Lyle and Benton, you know, run this place because it's just a it's it's a step above. I mean, I personally have trained at a lot of different places. There's a lot of great surgeons, but you come here and it's just it's eye opening. So well, and and I'm going to interview you for a second. You know, <laughs> how do we pick people that are going to come in and take over? I mean, you are Lyle and I 20 years ago, and you and Mark. I hope so. You know, yeah. and you guys are the next generation and we hopefully got ahead of it you know it was almost at a point in in andrew's career he was 57 when we were fellows and maybe when we interviewed maybe 58 when we were fellows we were 50 when we brought you guys in and and we wanted to get ahead of it we were very much trying to learn from that experience and get you guys ingrained in this enough and have eight or 10 years under your belt when we're trying to back it down maybe and be able to hand it to you. It's tough to hand stuff to somebody when they're a year or two in practice. Yeah. And, you know, even though they may want it, it's tough to give it to them because they don't have the experience to, to do it. Your experience yeah. over these last two years and how much you've grown into a great surgeon and a good clinician. And I hear patients talk about how I, we had one in here today that you yeah. saw. And I am really proud to see how you guys are having success and learning and we all are learning. I'm 21 years into this and I'm still learning oh, yeah. and plan to, but getting people to accept that they don't know everything when they come in. I, you guys have been great. You've been yeah. very humble. Well, You've shown you. up and work hard and that, that's a proud Papa thing for yeah. us. We're proud of you. Guys. Well, it's, it's a privilege. And I know I speak for Mark too. I mean, this is a special place and we're, we're very much at home here. So we're <laughs> loving it. So you're doing great. Well, thank you. Um, one of the other things I want to touch on too is is you've had a, a great experience with uh, a pretty prominent name that you know I think a lot of sports uh, enthusiasts knows Jim Valvano when you were at mm-hmm. NC State. What was I mean? He's very well known for his um, you know treatment of going through cancer mm-hmm. and just his amazingly positive attitude. What was your experience with him? So Uncle Hal, well, there were two two ways that I was involved with coach. So my baseball thing, I had kind of an on campus job job. I mean, I, I they gave me books and stuff, and I did this job. So am I. I, my job on campus was I was involved with on-campus recruiting in the basketball office. So Chris Corciani and Rodney Monroe and I were the same year in school. So I, I'd gotten to know Chris a little bit, and I, I go and I try to get this job in his office, which basically means I'm giving tours to the guys when they come on campus, and I'm hanging out with them. And there were occasions where an impromptu practice might break out, but practice had to be defined by certain rules. You couldn't have only people on the team so I was the non-team person. Gotcha. And um, let's just say that I suck at basketball. Okay. <laughs> and so I got to be around Coach, you know, a lot, and um, at least enough to get to know him. And I say this: he he was one of the more inspiring people that I ever met. I've been inspired by a lot of people, and I've been affected by a lot of people. But he had a gift for getting more out of people more than anybody I ever met. And he could inspire people to go from being good to great. He could take a two-star athlete and turn him into a four-star athlete and just by getting more from them and getting them to believe in themselves. Yeah. It was amazing to watch him actually coach you. It wasn't just his knowledge of the game. It was his knowledge of how to get more from people. And he was getting his cancer treatments at Duke. And I was a student there because I had moved over to Durham. And I walked into his room one day, the, the, the cancer floor at Duke at the time, and I, I don't know if they still have it this way, was in the ninth floor. And he always had the same nurse, and he would be getting his chemo. And so I went in there to see him one day, and he was passed out cold. And 
Coach Krzyzewski sitting in the chair next really? to his bed by the window and just doing some paperwork. And I yeah. walked in, and I had been introduced to Coach on a couple of occasions, but, I mean, he would not know me from Adam's house cat, and, he, and I think he didn't. But I walked in, and I, he may have recognized my face, and I, I just said hey to him, and I, I you know, asked how Coach was doing and you know, told him I knew him from NC State. And I got ready to leave, and Coach stood up, and he said, you know, I'll tell you something about this guy. He gets three-star, four-star talent. He doesn't have a five-star guy on his team. I have a lineup full of five. I got Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill, Christian Leitner, Thomas Hill. I got five stars top to bottom, and I got five stars on the bench, and he still beats me one out of three. And he said, I, I can't get past that. He is an amazing coach because he can get you to be better than you are. Wow. And I just I've tried to remember that and ingrain that into my my parenting with my kids, my relationship with my family, my work everything i just think he was an amazing person and i think the more you're around those kind of people the better you are especially as a physician because we are in sports medicine the coaches of medicine yeah as opposed to other aspects of medicine we have to coach our patients right we don't just get to take their problem out and say if you're when your sutures dissolve you know don't eat anything spicy for a while yeah we have to coach these people through months and years and i don't want to oversimplify general surgery that's not a knock on general surgery yeah but our, our things tend to involve a lot more coaching and I've taken a lot from him, yeah. and and hopefully you guys got to see that. Oh yeah. I mean, we we work together, you know, every day, and I I think I take some of him with me on on that journey with patients. Oh yeah. No, I don't mean to agree. I think the a lot of times the surgery aspect can be the easier part for it's, sure. It's the rehab, the recovery, encouragement, and like you said, coaching of getting patients through from the ACL to the time they are able to foot, you know, put their Absolutely. foot back on the playing field. Yeah. So. Um, that, that's, that's a great story. That's the part I love about yeah. it. You know, that's why we all do it. Yeah. Is is seeing that, you know, photo or that video of the, the yeah. crossing the finish line or that's the, doing a that's backhand the part spring. We love, yeah, right? I love it. Moving on, the obviously you came from HSS, had a great experience there with Russ Warren, and now you're down at Andrews. Um, complete your fellowship here. Mm-hmm. And then what? What ends up, you know, being the catalyst to bring you here? Back in the day, there were six fellows like there are now, but we split into two groups of three. And so we would do three with Andrews, three with Clancy, and then we would flip-flop. And But we stayed together all year. So it was me, Lyle, and Greg Carr on one side, and okay. Mark, Jim, yeah. and Scott Dean on the other side. So we started on Andrews, me, Lyle, and Greg. And long about October, towards the end of our first rotation, I think Dr. Andrews was enjoying the skill set that Lyle and I had coming in. And maybe his life was a little bit easier. And so... I think he also enjoyed us. I think he saw that we had a good camaraderie between us, and he offered both of us the chance to stay in October. And we were over the moon. Yeah. And we started thinking about it and talking about it. And when we flip over to Clancy, and we don't hear anything because we're on another, it's like you're on another island. Yeah. So January rolls around, and we haven't heard anything. So Lyle and I, we go back to Andrews and we flip back to the Andrews service in February and we still haven't heard anything about a job. And we, we ask and he's like, yeah, we'll, we'll work it out. And so Lyle and I felt like we have to go get jobs. I mean, this isn't happening. We got to go get a job. So I actually got a job in Florence, South Carolina and Lyle had a job in Decatur, Alabama. I didn't realize Lyle had a job too. Oh yeah. He had a job lined up. Oh my gosh. He had a job lined up and um, I had actually signed a contract. He had not. So I signed a contract and I was about to go buy a house in Florence. And the hospital there sent stuff back to Andrews because he had to sign it saying I was going to complete my fellowship in good standing and all these kind of yeah. things. And he calls me in and he, what what the heck is this? I said it's it's a it's where I'm. Gonna be. I thought you were staying here. 
I said, yeah, um, I, yeah, we, but we hadn't heard anything. It's, it's like April. I mean, I gotta get a job. I gotta get a job. I gotta buy a house. I gotta, yeah. I have a, I have a baby now. You know I mean? I gotta, we wanted to stay here. Is that still on the table? Well, yeah, of course it's on the table. Where's Lyle? And, and I mean, we all get together and he says, you guys thought you guys were staying here and Lyle and I are looking at each other like, are we, did we miss something? Did we miss a memo or something? And so the next day, HealthSouth had Larry Taylor, one of the presidents in our office. And we spent all day, Andrew basically said, do not come out of this office until you figure it out. We had a contract that day. Lyle and I signed the contract and, um, and I remember telling Andrews, I had, I had to, I have to get a, I have to have a contract to, to, to buy a house. You know, there, nobody's going to loan me money without he said contract. He said, when I signed my contract with Jack Houston, our contract was a handshake. I said, Dr. Andrews, the bank isn't going to take a handshake. From me. I'm sorry. They may <laughs> yeah. take your handshake, but they're not going to take mine. Oh my gosh. Your handshake may be worth that yeah. in the bank, but mine is not. So That's I great. need a contract. Oh my gosh. So anyway, so we get the contracts and, um, and I had to get out of my contract in, in Florence. I don't, I don't drive fast through Florence. <laughs> I, I felt bad. There yeah. was an HSS guy there that brought me in and gotcha, okay. I remember calling him and telling him and he was so gracious and, um, I really thought he was going to be upset with me. He was so gracious. His name was Dewey Irvin. And he said, you'd be making a big mistake if you didn't take that yeah. position. Oh, it's yeah. a great opportunity. You have to do it. And totally let me off the hook. And uh, always appreciated that. That's amazing. And so complete fellowship. Finally get a you know a contract after a, a handshake, even though that was a little bit uncertain. And you and, you and Lyle kind of start off together. How hire two guys out of fellowship. What was that first year to two years like where you first got here? We shared an office. We shared staff. We scrubbed each other's cases, which were frequently starting at nine or 10 o'clock at night when Dr. Andrews or Dr. Clancy was finished. We had no block time. So we had no scheduled time for our patients. We would put cases on and we didn't know if they were gonna start at five in the evening or midnight. I can remember we did a meniscus transplant that started at 11 p.m. one time. Oh man. And you know, we, we focused on quality outcomes. We said, we gotta make sure that we do it right. We gotta make sure that we do all the PT stuff right. And we gotta have our indications right. We gotta get, we gotta pass the boards. We got all these things we gotta do. We can't worry about getting too busy too quick. It's gonna come. We're in a good spot. We had a two year guarantee and we just got going. And, and I think our first year we both did 200 cases. The average orthopedic surgeon in America does about 350 to 400, and I yeah. think we did 200. Yeah. Our second year, I think we did 300. Our fourth year, I think we did 400. So I, I third or fourth year. So I don't think we got to the average for four years. Yeah, and that was okay. When we got past about four or 500, we had to split up offices because we needed the people and the yeah. space. But we continue to be next to each other. 21 years. I mean. If I need him, he's right there. If he needs yeah. me, I'm right there. Yeah. So it's we still interact on cases. We still go ask each other questions and hey, what do you think about this? And um, we're we're a lot closer than most people think. We're yeah. we're pretty good friends. I think we have an absolute mutual respect for each other and an undying loyalty to each other yeah. that you know it makes for a great partnership. Yeah. So. Well, I think that's fantastic. And I think that from my understanding too, he kind of uh, let me in on this in terms of initially before Andrews became what it is currently today, it was, I believe, Alabama Sports Medicine previously. Mm -hmm. And that was associated with Health South. It was. That's right. And I was 
probably in junior high, high school when the entire Hell South sort of debacle went down. Yep. And on Lyle's recommendation, I actually went back and watched one of the documentaries on that. What was your experience like going through all of that as Alabama sports medicine transitioned through the Hell South debacle into Andrew sports medicine? So I'm sure he told you we were there yeah. the day that the FBI showed up. He so mentioned it, yeah, but it didn't tell me the full story. We were on campus having lunch. We had been invited by Richard Scrushy to have lunch with him and the executive team. Really? So we were we ate sea bass, best sea bass I ever had, <laughs> which should have told me something. Yeah. In the executive dining room at HealthSouth Corporation, we met with the guy who was doing the PR and marketing stuff. Um, we met with the executive team. Our The new building, the new hospital is coming out of the ground. We're looking at that. And we drove off campus at four o'clock and we had met Richard on a number of occasions. Mr. Scrushy was always very nice to us, but we'd never really spent any time with him, just us. And that, this was the point. I mean, he wanted just to sit with us. I remember at lunch, we he told us, you guys have young kids. Make sure you take time to go do all these things. He says, I'm going to Yogurt Mountain with my kids this weekend and make sure you take the time to do these things with family. And I drove home that afternoon and I told Tracy, you know, I, I really enjoyed today. We had a great time today. He's, he's a good guy. I mean, this is really the most time we've spent with him. And about two hours later, she said, you, you said he was a good guy, huh? I said, yeah. She says, well, the FBI doesn't think so. They're raiding the headquarters right now. I was like, what? And and sure enough, that's when it was March 18th, 2003. I remember it like it was yesterday. Wow. And Lyle and I, I mean, we're calling each other like, oh my God, are we, did we do anything wrong? I mean, we didn't, but is it is it possible we said something or did something? Yeah. We, we didn't. And so that all went down and we had to get out of the hospital. We had this hospital that was basically an orthopedic hospital, Health South Medical Center. And and we had to leave, they sold it. And we left there in May of 2005. And we had to find a home. We had this big practice with 14 doctors and there was no place that could take that kind of volume as a group. Yeah. And so we had to split the group up, which was sad because we had a really good group and really talented bunch. And, and we got along well and some people went to Brookwood and some people went to UAB and some people um, went other places and then the sports group really came over here. And St. Vincent's took us in and promised to build us this building that we're sitting in. And um, they made a lot of promises and some of them they kept and some of them they, you know, the people that led it moved on and it didn't happen. Not maliciously, but yeah. you know, the people that made the promises weren't there anymore. So. We ended up getting this building. We moved into this building in October of 2008. So we've been here going on 12 years. And we restarted the practice. Um, we split up from the, the people in the sports group, including Dr. Lemack, who was one of the managing partners back in the day. Um, we had a split with them. So the people that were Andrews, myself, Lyle, Dr. Andrews, Richard Sanders, uh, Angus McBride, who was our foot and ankle mm -hmm. specialist and one of the most amazing people. Tracy Ray, Jody Ortega, and Steve Nichols, uh, the eight of us formed Andrews Sports Medicine, and the rest of them went with Lemac. And so we stayed, and they left and went to another hospital. And then we moved in this building, and we grew it from there. So um, it started with a small group, and uh, and grew from there. So now we got what twenty five, twenty four. Yeah. I mean, we got I think it's thir 13, 14 surgeons, fourteen and surgeons, and seven, almost some, seven on staff, and maybe another one to come soon. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot. And as I understand it, too, even though there was an eventual split 
uh, mm-hmm. Andrews went one way and Lee Mack crew went the other way. Uh, yep. From what I understand, Larry Lee Mack was one of the driving forces of actually bringing Andrews to Birmingham. Is that correct? He was, and that was before our time, but that was back in the mid eighties. Uh, you know, Andrews came in 86 and, and Larry had, had built a big practice here. Larry's originally from Pittsburgh and obviously a very good surgeon had built a big practice here and had relationships with, with health South, with Richard Scrushy and health South and wanted to build a regional, you know, national sports presence. And Andrews had started doing all this big sports stuff in Columbus, gotcha. Georgia, at the Houston Clinic. But mm-hmm. he was covering colleges in Alabama. So he was working okay. with West Alabama and places like that because Houston had all that. Gotcha. And so he was flying across the border and doing this in Alabama. And, and Larry had gotten to know Andrews. They, they knew each other socially and talked him into coming. And um, Dr. Andrews left Houston Clinic in 1986 on the promise of founding the American Sports Medicine Institute. Uh, opening Hell South Medical Center, which was previously South Highlands Hospital, and um, and they grew the practice, Alabama Sports Medicine. They brought in some different people, and um, and that was in '86. And Lyle and I came as fellows in '99. Okay. So they had been there for 13 years before. So they had been there. up and running. They'd been up and things. running for a while. Wow. Okay. And they had they, we were the 13th and 14th physicians in the practice when we came. That's fascinating. I mean, I you know I think everyone kind of focuses on Andrews, and I think his, his initial presence which really, you know, maybe you can speak to exactly the year, but it seems like it's a lot more recent than it was back to the 80s, at least nationally. Oh, yeah. No, he, he did Roger Clemens surgery uh, before the 86 season. Okay. Um, so I think it was his return in 86 that really made it. Maybe it was the surgery in 86. I may be getting that wrong, but that was a big one, you know. Uh, it was the Troy Aikmans of the world and, and Roger Clemens of the world. And, yeah. You know, uh, it, he, he did a lot. He's done. He's an amazing. Uh, I mean, you've been around him. Oh yeah, it's incredible to be around him. He has enormous energy, and I always say about people about surgeons, the best surgeons are the ones that make the best decisions. There are lots of people who have technical skills. There are lots of people who have good hands, and you you can teach anybody to run a power drill, or you know, you can. Those are things you can teach and you can practice, but you can't practice making good decisions. His ability to succeed and get the outcomes he does is based on the volume that he's seen over mm-hmm. an incredible career. And he's just done more than everybody else. And so every time you thought, okay, screwed the pooch on this one, totally got it wrong, think he's wrong on this one, he's not. Yeah. And and he just has a knack for understanding people. And again, that's that whole communication skill thing. It's like Valvano. Andrews is a really good coach. He really understands the people he's working with. He really knows what motivates them and what they want. He's really good at communicating. And that's why he gets the results he gets. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, he's a special guy. I mean, obviously, he's, we're all here as a result of, for of sure. his uh, his legacy. For sure. Um, and I look forward to actually talking to him, you know, hopefully uh, oh, yeah. coming up here soon. Separately and kind of shifting directions. Uh, obviously, right now, we're kind of in the middle of this hiatus for the COVID-19 mm-hmm. pandemic. And you are obviously been affected uh, as we all have from a surgical standpoint, but also, you know, with our ability to be involved in sports medicine, mm-hmm. uh, I believe you're involved a little bit with the NCAA. What is your take initially globally on the pandemic and the hiatus? And then I think there's a few other things that from a, from an athlete standpoint, what is your sort of a, you know, approach or thoughts on this? My first thought is that having six weeks off was initially, it was a blessing for me. I mean, I, I'll never have that again. I had no. my college age kids, in my house for six weeks and I was home. I didn't come to work. I didn't do a case. I didn't see a patient that wasn't virtual. And it was amazing for me. I enjoyed every minute of it. 
and I'm thankful for it. People probably would say that I could be happy in a paper bag, and I probably could, but I really enjoyed that paper bag, yeah. and it was great to be with my family um, because I'm gone from them, you know, a fair amount. So I enjoyed that. I, I think on the pandemic front, it's the most incredible thing from a work life. Uh, you know, looking at New York because we we both lived there. Right what's happened there it's we watch that from a distance it's very different here in alabama yeah but i'm very sensitive to what's happening in new york and i communicate with my friends there as you do and right. they're in a much different world very different. and we have to be sensitive to the fact that it's they're the front line yeah. you know and um what they've endured is nothing close to what I mean, we have endured nothing close yeah. to what they have right so i gotta take it with that lens on it and say that we're blessed here you know, we've been back to work now for a month and basically May was a pretty normal month. I mean, it's been a pretty normal volume and we're basically back to normal. Right. That's not true everywhere. And I, I don't take that for granted. We, we definitely are very blessed here. I think there's a lot still to happen. There's things that we don't know yet there. We don't know what's going to happen if there's going to be another recurrence or surge. We don't know when a vaccine will be widespread availability will happen. I think we can plan for more cases. You know, right yeah. now we're in a state where the numbers are on the rise a little bit. We got to be sensitive to that. I had three people ask me today, "Do you think this is all BS?" You know, do you think do you think this is just we're overplaying this? And I said, "No, I don't think we're overplaying this at all." You, you get a high school kid that dies from COVID because they went back to play football. I'd love to see. There's going to be a number of zeros on the end of that lawsuit that doesn't yeah. ever end. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that we have to be protective of the population. And I think that the leadership of the country has done a great job with that. I think that they've been leading with science. They've led with economy. They've led medically. And I'm not just saying that about the president. I'm saying leadership in general. I think they're wise to start to release the, the noose a little bit and because we've got to develop widespread immunity. Yeah. And if for no other reason, we can't just stay at home. Right. Because we're going to face the same problems later. We're just kicking the can down the road. Right. So I think we have to best practice. We have to take the guidelines and we have to do those things. And as much as I don't like wearing, you know, one of these things every time I see a patient yeah. and walk around the office right now, it's the right thing to yeah. do. And, and so we're going to lead by example in the practice. And, um, you know, I think that we will get back to some sense of normalcy come fall a little bit i do think we'll have college football yeah i do think it'll be very different than what we're used to seeing um there will be entire teams that get wiped out there'll be teams that play 12 games and there'll be some that play five or six yeah do you think that distinction is going to be solely based on geography more than anything else I don't know. I think it's tough to say. I think there's so many factors. It could be population density. It could be what the student body looks like in terms of where they're from. Um, it could be just the practices of the place. It could be the you know the general willingness to follow the guidelines. Yeah. But this virus knows no bounds. It doesn't know uh, geography, really, and it doesn't know a gender and a, a socioeconomic group. It, it's going to affect who it's going to affect. And I think we just have to be prepared and we have to do the best we can yeah. to, to wait for there to be no risk. We might as well just close the whole thing up shop and go two years in a bubble. Yeah. It's not reasonable. So we have to 
put dip our toe in it and get back out there yeah in the same vein as far as you know our athletes obviously you know you said you think we're gonna have football this season and i would agree and whether or not that's going to be similar here or in new york or in california i think it's gonna be very different what is your thought on you know obviously these a lot of these spring seniors what is your thought on uh, ncaa eligibility yeah i think that if they missed an entire season they obviously ought to get one back um, I think if they didn't miss an entire season, you know, I mean, the football players that played last fall, I don't think they need to get another year back. Right. But in basketball was basically done. I don't think they need another year back. Right. Baseball, they need another year back. Softball, you know, spring, whatever, all the spring sports should yeah. get another year. Yeah. And they did. I mean, that's, I think that's what the NCAA did. Yeah, I think for the most part, I think there's a few. Uh, I know that the um, my wife uh, went to, to Princeton, and I know the Ivies are very strict about that. So a lot yeah. of the Ivies basically said no dice yeah and, and you know i don't know that the ncaa can force that they can right. offer it also they basically said you have another year of eligibility that doesn't mean you get to stay where you are right so they could transfer from princeton or an ivy or graduate from there and go somewhere else and play they do have another year of eligibility so they're they're not obligated to stay there okay um we're seeing that also by the way are you really yeah we've seen some cornell kids and people from different places moving coming to different places okay um, at troy we have a kid from cornell gotcha okay so there's some opportunities still. there is yeah for sure got it with that what do you think you know in this time where you know you don't have spring practices or games you don't have your off-season practices what is the biggest concern for you seeing athletes come back in the fall number one i think some athletes will be back on campus next week mm-hmm. so we're pushing first of june here as we're taping this um there'll be athletes back on campus june one in a lot of places they're going to be doing what's called VERA, which is Voluntary Athletically Related Activity. It's okay. not required, but in a lot of places it's kind of required. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. Yeah. So it's not counted, in other words, but there's limits. They're not allowed to practice, but they can be working out with the strength and conditioning coaches. Okay. So that's going to start. Okay. And that would be the normal, June 1 is the normal time that that would start. So they're going okay. to start on time. Okay. Then in July they're going to continue through that process and basically the preseason which is a 29 day prescribed time frame they're planning on that starting in august the the division one schools have men's basketball and football on campus in the summer and they can do this vera type of activity okay none of the other sports can and the division two and division three schools don't do that either so they're used to showing up in august and getting going okay my biggest concern is teams that didn't have a spring, they don't have control of the athletes over the summer. So say you've got a Division two athlete that didn't have their spring soccer season and they went home and they're home all summer and now they're going to come back and they're going to have four weeks before their first match. Is that a reasonable way to do this? Now, granted, they've done it that way ad infinitum in the past, the four-week thing but they also may have had a spring season. Right. The summertime, honestly, with three months in the summer, they ought to be able to keep them in shape, and they're used to doing it that way. Sure. But that's my biggest concern. And as they get back, what is the COVID effect? You come back to campus, are they going to quarantine these people for two weeks? Are they going to test them all? The cost of testing these people is exorbitant. Yeah. Um, The financial implications of that are crazy. So I, I think that that's the, the logistics of getting those things done. And how are you going to have all these people in close proximity? Right. How are you going to handle having another team come to campus? 
multiple teams come to campus. You have golf matches where you have 20 teams come to campus. How are you going to manage these things? And those are the things that the NCAA is trying to work through with the conferences, with the schools. And, you know, it's it's amazing to watch all these people really working hard towards yeah. the same goal. Um, and even at the high school level, I was on a call this morning with the High School Athletic Association speaking to the district coaching directors with the and with the AHSAA people. And, and basically the, the chairman or the president and director of AHSAA, Steve Savary, said, look, it's it is our responsibility to lead we must as the adults follow the rules we must put these practices into place and we have to set the standard because if we don't we can't expect them to and he's exactly right, right. so I, I think it's going to be interesting to see that part of it as we go forward yeah i had a really good conversation again with matt price over at sanford and the yep. same thing we talked about all these you know the, the logistic nightmare of trying to make sure that you're taking all the necessary precautions while at the same time being able to provide not only the education which is paramount but also mm-hmm. the ability for these athletes to return and do right the, their sport is is really tough right on what is your biggest concern from an injury standpoint at this point my fear is that they're going to try to compress things you know that that the coaches and the athletes are going to try to compress a training process into a shorter period of time and therefore have have acute on chronic overload um and and that's just going to be tough you know not everybody has access to the technology that we have with like catapult and yeah. not every school has a system that's going to tell you how much load you're putting a gps system all that stuff GPS yeah systems and not not all these schools i mean the, the division one football programs there's 117 of them but there's 300 and something of them you know, across all across all NCAA. Right. So even a lot of the NCAA Division One programs don't have some of those technologically advanced abilities. Yeah. So my fear is that there's going to be an attempt by collectively the, the coaches and the players mm-hmm. to compress the getting ready part of this. Yeah. And that could be dangerous. When you're dealing with fatigue, you're dealing with closeness. I mean, COVID could ravage a team. Yeah, you know when we get back to that point, it could if you, if it gets in there, you're not playing, right? And you may be forfeiting. And, right. And people at the NCAA and committees and things, they're they're looking at those possibilities. Yeah. So, I I don't want to say it's an eventuality. Yeah. But it's it's certainly on everybody's mind. Yeah. Top of the list. Are there any specific injuries that you worry about? You know, whether it's an ACL, hamstring injuries, more so for these you know football players. Fall. fall I would say we worry more about the soft tissue injuries. Yeah. You know, with these kind of things, um, than than anything else. Um, stress reactions and things like that in bones, maybe, but I think we worry more about soft tissue injuries. There's clear yeah. data that a shortened training time leads to more soft tissue injuries. Yeah. So I think that's the thing that we, as a committee, as a health and safety committee, are trying to prevent. We're trying to institute longer required, um, you know, acclimatization periods and, and transition periods. And these are specific words that are used in the NCAA language to get the athletes yeah. ready for performance. So assuming June one's here, I yeah. mean, you think that's probably as it has been before, likely adequate time to ramp up. I do, I do, okay. but you know, we got to hope that they don't take the absence of spring and try to compress it. And that's we've, we've taken steps to try to keep that from happening. Yep. And, and the coaches seem to be on board with it okay. all the way. The, the best coaches. I mean, um, we talked to Dr. Hainline, who's one of the, who's the chair of the he's the medical director for for NCAA. Spoke to. SEC coaches and there was a question about lengthening the preseason and coach Saban spoke up and said that's a bad idea more injuries happen in the preseason 
lengthening the preseason is just a recipe for more soft tissue injury. And he's right. And so, so the coaches are invested in not having more injuries. So yeah. I, I think they're very aware. Right. Um, beyond just the acute phase in the next couple of months, do you think COVID-19 will have a long lasting impact beyond not only this season, but two years, four years, five years, 10, you know, 10 years down the line? I do. Um, I think it'll change different things in different sports. I think it'll change some recruiting patterns. I think it'll change um, the way we look at um, virtual training and, and testing. I think it'll force us to telecondition in some sports, mm-hmm. and it may improve those things. One of the things that we've talked about is we have to leave room for the possibility that we may get the athletes back in better shape because they haven't been on campus all summer. Maybe they will be healthier, yeah. not less healthy. Interesting. And some of them, anyway. Yeah. And so we have to make room for the possibility that some of these people may be better off because of this time. Right. And um, so I, I do think there will be some long-term ramifications. I don't think the sidelines are going to be as crowded as they were before. Probably not. I think you're, I mean, we may not have bands and cheerleaders this fall. Yeah. I mean, there's, I don't think that'll go forever, but I, I do think there's going to be some. Definitely real possibilities. Real possibilities, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is uh, unprecedented, so it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Unprecedented. Moving on to something slightly differently, but a little bit more dear to your heart. Obviously, as a baseball player, throughout your youth, throughout college, obviously coming down to one of the more predominant or well-known areas for treating baseball injuries, in particular elbow and shoulder, um, you were one of the pioneers of the UCL repair, um, which has really kind of gained a lot of speed over the last three to five years. Describe how we transitioned from Tommy John's first surgery back in 1974 with uh, Frank Job to where we are now with your UCL repair. You know, what were your thoughts on developing that? How did you come up with the idea and, and really how did you take it to where it is now? So obviously Frank Job, um, his instruments from Tommy John's surgery in the hall of fame and, and they belong there. You know, I mean, um, I had the chance to meet Dr. Job. He was a gentleman among gentlemen and an amazing clinician as is Dr. Andrews. And so the, and, and Dr. Andrews modified it and, you know, several people, Dave Alchek did the docking. So I trained right. with Alchek in New York, so I had some experience with that. You work next to Andrews for 10 years, you scrub in on several thousand of these operations, so it becomes rote, you know, it becomes pretty vanilla, and you've seen a lot of the things you're going to see, and so you get a lot of that experience that I talked about, that, that just N under your belt. And we cut into these ligaments all the time, and, and you see the spectrum of pathology from blown in half to, is this the right elbow? I mean, it just doesn't look that bad. Why, right. why can't this person throw? I mean, right. it's not blown in half. You can barely find the injury in this thing. And we had one answer. We did reconstruction. We did UCL reconstruction, Tommy John surgery. And, and there are multiple forms of that. You know, the docking technique, the modified job, the original one, the, there's four or five different ones, and they all have good results, about the same, across the board. But they had done repairs. If you read their original articles, the original article that Frank Job published, which was John Conway as the lead author, and then Andrew's group, which was Fred Azar as the author, they both published on about 80 to 90 patients, and they had repairs in their groups, but the repairs didn't do very well. They did poorly, actually. Um, less than 30% of them got back to same or higher level of play wow, okay. compared to 75 to 90% with the reconstructions. And so rightfully, they said, repair is a bad idea right and how were they repairing it at the time they were sewing it back they were okay. drilling tunnels and sewing it back because they didn't have suture anchors right. in 1974 okay 
and, and back in the Andrews time when he was doing these things, these are these are cases before 1990. So suture anchor technology, suture technology, just the experience with the operation, the rehab, way less than what we had 10 years later. Right. So fast forward after doing thousands of these things with Andrews and we're sitting in there and I remember thinking, gosh, there's gotta be something we could do for some of these lower level things. There's, we gotta circle back to this. And then Gordon Mackay, who's a foot and ankle surgeon from Scotland, kind of came up with this internal brace idea, which is really just a piece of fiber tape between two plastic anchors. And he popularized it in the ankle. And I remember being at a conference with him and I said, we can do this in the elbow. And I told the manufacturer, Arthrex, I think we can do this. And they thought we would have to use bigger anchors. And I said, no, we can do it with these little ones. Mm -hmm. And they didn't think so. And I went down there and I showed him we could do it in a cadaver. And then we did a couple of studies, basic science-wise here. We looked at the pull-out strength. We looked at the time zero fixation. We looked at all these things. I mean, I wanted to do that before I put it in a live human being. Right. And then it was just a matter of waiting for the right person to come in. And Mark Johnson walked in in the summer of 2013 from Dothan, Alabama, lefty pitcher, a junior in high school, rising senior, one year left, only pitch, PO, didn't play a position. And it was July August and he had already rested through the summer and it hadn't gone well and he couldn't pitch. And so if I reconstruct this guy, he's going to be a minimum of May, June, right? which means he misses the whole season. Right. And I talked to him about it. I said, look, this has never been done. I don't know if this will work. I've done it in a lab and I showed him all the data and his mom and I explained it to him and I explained what my thought process was and they understood this was very experimental. And I even went to the hospital and said, should we, can we give this away? Cause I don't feel, I mean, this is very experimental. We can't, I don't think we can ask an insurance company to pay for this. And they agreed. And so we did the surgery and I get a video five months later from the trainers that are doing his rehab down in Troy. And he's throwing full blast 90, 90 plus percent effort at five months. He pitched his whole senior year, didn't miss a start, gets a junior college deal, goes and pitches in junior college. And um, now he's a fireman. Really? And so he was the first one. August that was number one. August eighth, two thousand thirteen. That's that's a date you'll and never forget. Huh? I do. And, yeah. and uh, he's a great guy. I still talk to him every now and then. And um, and then I did a couple more. I didn't. I didn't want to roll it out. I had one right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do another one for like three months. And then I did a gymnast. Okay. I did a wrestler, and I did another baseball player. So I did four in about a six month period. And then I waited. I wanted to wait six months and see if everybody got back yeah. and they all did. And then I started doing more of them. So there was kind of a break between the fourth one and the fifth one. And then I started doing more of them And the first year after the first four, I think I did eight. I think this year in 2020, well, it's probably different because of COVID. Let's say 2019. I think I did a hundred of them. Yeah. You know, maybe 120. So it's, it's grown and I've, I've found where I think it fits. And the, one of the more gratifying parts of this for me over the course of the last seven years has been seeing other surgeons that I value, including all of you guys mm-hmm. that are my partners, find that it has a place in their practice. Definitely. And people like John Conway and Neil Elitrosh and Chris Ahmad and, and, and uh, you know, Jim Bradley and George Paletta. And these, are, these guys are giant elbow surgeons and, and to see them have success with it and feel like it's a good thing for the, some of their patients, man, I, I couldn't be any more happy 
to have come up with an idea that translated to that. Yeah. And um, I'm 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 humbled that they that they are so welcoming of it. Yeah. I mean that's awesome. And you know to kind of just elaborate a little bit more for you know those who are not exactly aware of the difference between the UCI reconstruction and the repair. What's the biggest difference on a very superficial level that allows patients to be able to throw that much quicker? I mean, you're almost cutting yeah. the time to recover in half. Right. So you're dealing with a repaired ligament, which we repair ligaments all over the body. I mean, every other ligament in the body, we repair it, right? The MCL, the ACL, we even repair ACLs at times. <laughs> so getting soft tissue to heal to a bone bed is something that we do a lot yeah. in other places. Um, extra articular, you know, it's it's not hard to get that to happen. So no. when you have an end avulsion, so it, it tears off of one end or the other versus in the middle, you can stick it back to where it came from. You can yeah. actually anchor it back, tie it down, and get that to heal back to that end very reliably. And and ligament likes to heal to bone. Ligament doesn't like to heal to ligament. And, and so the mid-substance ones, those are the ones that maybe don't do as well or aren't going to do as well with the repair. Maybe the lower level, the low-level partials will, but a, a full-thickness mid-substance rupture, that's not a good repair candidate. Or somebody with bad tissue. If this thing's been beat up for a long time and you got gelatinous tissue and it's kind of ligament replacement tissue, not real ligament, I don't think the tape is going to hold up to that. Okay even in the short run, I don't think you're going to be able to turn that gelatinous crud into ligament. And so doing a repair in that instance, I don't think is, is a good idea. They need more collagen. They need gotcha. more fiber. And so doing a graft is, is still gotcha. warranted. And that's where you're saying you weave the, you weave yeah, the graft. You weave the graft in there. You see, you place a tendon graft in those so tunnels. So it's more of a soft tissue replacement it's, in that sense. Exactly. And okay. that piece of tissue. So the real difference to answer your question is a ligament tissue that has to heal does not have to undergo the process of ligamentization. Okay. It's already a ligament. Right. A tendon graft has to heal into the bone tunnel and then undergo or concomitantly undergo the process of ligamentization to become a ligament tissue. That takes time. It takes a lot more time than just healing ligament back to bone. Gotcha. And so to me, that's the six to eight month difference. But Again, it's not for every UCL. You can't make good ligament out of bad ligament. And you can't make a end avulsion out of a mid-substance rupture. So it is for a certain type of injury. It's for a certain bucket of patient. It's not for all. Yeah. And don't forget ever that UCL reconstruction has a 40, 50-year history. This has a seven-year history. And really... If you really get past the first 10 or 15 patients, it really has a five-year history. Right. So a lot more information on UCL reconstruction. It is the gold standard. I do not in any way want anybody to think that I hold this out as a replacement for reconstruction. It is not. Yeah. But I do think there's a place for it. And I think you just have to know how to do it and know the differences if you're going to do that. And. In your, obviously now, how many total do you think you've done since the start of this? I think probably in Birmingham, we, our practice has probably done six, seven hundred. Yeah. Something like that. And yeah. what do you think you've learned from the first hundred until your most recent hundred? I think that um, what we said from the beginning turned out to be true. Under no circumstances should you over-tension this thing. Do not put it in too tight. If you're going to put it in a little bit loose, that's better than being a little bit tight. Okay. 
And what's the reason for that? I think you can over-constrain the elbow. Okay. And, and you can capture the elbow and they'll lose motion. Okay. So I think we've said that from the beginning and that has proven to be the case. Okay. I'm happy to say we got ahead of that early. Gotcha. But do not put it in too tight. And they lose two. motion in and extension you won't be able to, Usually flexion. more in flexion. They won't so be able to they get, they get flexion deficit. Okay. Number two, I would say that the position of the humeral tunnel, where you put the humeral anchor, is the most important part of the case. Okay. And that's probably true for UCL reconstruction as well. Okay. And I think that this has taught me better how to do UCL reconstruction, the Tommy John surgery. Yeah because I've realized how important that tunnel is. And we did some research on that, but I think humeral tunnel, the upper tunnel of the yeah. two. So top it, one on the arm the, bone. The top one on the arm bone. Not, the on, one the, that's not, on, the not on the forearm yeah. bone, but the arm bone. That has proven to be really important. As far as the players, you said there's a place, it's got a specific role. Initially, a lot of the players were, like you said, high school players who may or may not be playing at the next level, and then, and then college players, and then even some gymnasts who are non-throwing yeah. athletes. And I think it was um, out of St. Louis, right? Was it? Uh, yeah, George Paletta. George Paletta did the first he professional did player. Seth Manus. He did the first major league guy. Okay. Um, Seth Manus back in 2016. And, you know, George had done hundreds of these. So he had experience. And George is a gifted elbow surgeon, does a lot of Tommy John surgery, had done a lot of time. So somebody that knew his way around the elbow, it wasn't just a fluke. Plus, he took care of the Cardinals. I mean, right. he's, a, he's a major league baseball doc. So um, Seth Manis had come up through the uh, Cardinals organization and he had this injury and, and George felt like, I remember he sent me the images and it, and it felt like George was not talking him into this. It, George just wanted to see if, he wanted to see if I thought this was a good candidate. I said, radiographically, it looks like a great candidate for yeah. it. So the, Im the images the looked, images like, it was okay. looked yeah. like it his ligament tissue was fine. It was just torn. Yeah. And and George so George took the leap and and I got it we talked a lot through that process and obviously surgically it wasn't a problem I mean it's not a it's not that the surgical procedure itself is that difficult for George but it was I mean he took a big step and, yeah. and Seth got back so he was back pitching um, at the major league level in he, he was back full competition in nine months okay and major league at 11 wow. with a full start at 11 that's pretty good stuff for yeah. you know that level yeah, how nervous were you when that one went down? I was fairly nervous. We were doing a fair number of interviews during that, yeah, that period, and and there were a lot of things going on. Stefania Bell, my friend with ESPN, yeah. wound up talking to him, and you know there have been a few of those guys, and it is a little bit nerve wracking. And but at the same time, I mean, you have to. It's 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 like Andrews and Warren and and Fagan. I remember talking to some of those guys about it. And, and talking to my colleagues, uh, talking to Mike Sakati, yeah. who's a good friend, and, and Jim Bradley and John Conway and these guys. And one of the biggest influences, you asked me who influenced me, one of the bigger influences was Buddy Savoy. Okay. So Buddy's a very prominent elbow surgeon in New Orleans, New Orleans yeah. Tulane, and, and one of the better shoulder and elbow surgeons ever. And, and just a gentleman, too. And, and Buddy had published some articles on just repair with suture anchors back in the mid-2000s. And I had read these and nobody, I, I had not really paid much attention to it. Apparently nobody else had because repair was not happening. But Buddy was doing them and getting yeah. great success in early returns. And it was going largely overlooked. And so I talked to Buddy about it and he was very encouraging to me. He said, this is a good idea. Don't let anybody derail you. This is a good idea. Keep going. Yeah. Mike Scotty, same thing. Chris Ahmad, same thing. John Conway, same thing. And um, Neil Eltrosh, Andrews, you know, same thing. And I really never felt unsupported about it. So it was, it was good. That's awesome. Do you think that with this indication that there will 
will ever at some point be more ideal for a higher level player like in the pro levels or do you think there's just too much mileage on that elbow whereas opposed to a high school or college player obviously hasn't had that many miles and so you're probably going to do a higher percentage of those players as opposed to the pro i think the number of ucls that get torn is i mean there's only a limited number of pro players right so they'll always do more you know high schoolers than you do college than you do pro but i don't think that the operation has anything to do with level velocity it doesn't have anything to do with that stuff. It doesn't matter if you're a 40-year-old with a UCL tear mm-hmm. or a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old. It matters whether the tissue quality is good right. and what the injury is. And so we've done them across that spectrum, and it doesn't seem to matter. So I don't think age matters. I don't think level of competition matters. It's certainly velocity doesn't matter. We've seen 100-mile-an-hour guys go back to throwing 100 miles an hour. So That's awesome. It, it does not seem to make a difference. Yeah. And that makes sense because you're getting a ligament to be a ligament. It makes sense that with reconstruction that that works because you're getting a tendon to become a ligament. It just takes longer. takes longer. So you're replacing tissue with tissue versus repairing tissue, yeah. which is only possible if the tissue is repairable. Yeah. Have you seen players come back? And, and I've seen your data, so it's all really good data, at least in the short term. Mm-hmm. Have you seen players come back where you had to revise to a UCL reconstruction? We have one that I'm aware of. Okay. And I actually sent, uh, is a mid, mid-Atlantic college kid that actually pitched a season after the repair but developed some bone, some what's called heterotopic ossification, which is okay. when bone grows in an area where it shouldn't grow. And he developed that in the backside of his elbow. And we went in and took the the heterotopic ossification out and he came back and through but then it came back again and um i i sent him to chris ahmad up in new york yeah because i wanted another pair of eyes and chris and i spoke about it and we both agreed that revising it was the thing to do now at the time of the revision the the, re, the repair was intact but it, he still had this massive he kept regrowing this bone so chris took the whole thing out and and did a reconstruction mm-hmm. and he was pitching this past spring Really? When COVID happened. Okay. So he'll have another year of eligibility. All right. Um, great young man, and he handled it gracefully. Um, he was thrilled the first year or two, and then it went down after that. And yeah. So I, I will tell you that Chris said it was the easiest revision he ever did because there was okay. no bone loss. Yeah. So it wasn't soft tissue bone about tunnel. Tunnels that yeah. have kind of widened. He said or they didn't have any tunnel problems, which is great for revision. So really, your only sort of concern for having an issue with it so far again, short-term results is is kind of an atypical sort of a response mm-hmm. with that extra bone formation. Yeah, that's been the one. And I've had one that tore. So I had a kid who I fixed when he was a freshman in high school and he tore it on the forearm side. In his senior year, obviously his last game because he tore it, he tore it on the upper side. Okay. So he tore it on the opposite end of the ligament and he was going off to college but not playing baseball and he didn't want it fixed. Gotcha. Even though I tried to talk him into it. Yeah. But he wouldn't let me fix it. <laughs> That's great. I think that's very fascinating. I think the whole idea of, of, I mean, it's a pioneering, it's a very innovative idea. That's that's fantastic to see that it's, it's gone where it has. And obviously down here at Andrews, we are very involved in a lot of baseball research. Yeah. Uh, Mark Rothermick did a great study looking at UCL mm-hmm. incidents. And I was reviewing the book that we read before coming to fellowship called The Arm, which you yeah. are quoted in. And yeah. this, in the, this room. In with, this room. With Jeff Passan. Room. There you go. Jeff Passan's an amazing guy. Yeah. I love reading his stuff. Well, he's, I mean, he's, he's a great writer. writer. And his whole 
point or premise of that book is that are we are we in an epidemic of UCL injuries yeah. and you know what is your take on it as a as an elbow surgeon I, I do not see it slowing down okay. in spite of the rules that have been implemented the pitch counts and all those things I don't seem to see a decline in it and I think that that's an infatuation with velocity which is understandable I think that that's the nature of the beast look basketball players jump higher and run, you know, track athletes run faster, football players hit harder, baseball players throw faster. I mean, it's the is there a physiologic limit to that? Yeah, of course there will be. Yeah, but I think there is a fascination with velocity, and um, and baseball is a developmental sport, so you don't learn to pitch when you're 18. You got to pitch when you're you were not. Let me rephrase it. You don't learn to throw when you're 18. If you don't throw when you're young, you don't develop the body adaptations to be able to throw. You have to learn that when yeah. you're a kid. So you do start putting mileage and and learning to do these things at a young age. Can you explain exactly what adaptations you mean in terms yeah, so of making you sure. a good thrower? So if you can't lay your arm back flat, you know, and I mean, I can lay my arm back yeah. past 90 degrees. This one I can't. This one will stop close to 90 but yeah. this is my throwing arm and if you don't develop that as a kid if you can only get to here you're not going to throw the ball very well and and so it's a little bit of if you can't load the gun you can't fire the bullet right and and those adaptations that your body undergoes happen when your growth plates are still open you can't make that happen when you're done growing you right. can't learn to throw a ball well when you're 20 something years old you're, yeah. you're just not you're gonna have shoulder problem you're gonna hurt something so it's a developmental sport, and I think that plays into it, and the fascination obsession with with, with Vila. So speaking to elbow injuries, there's some thought that the percentage of pitches and the types of pitches is, is changing a little bit to a little bit more off speed. Do you think that will have an impact on injury rates or types of injuries? I think it does have an impact and an effect. Um, you know, the more you spin your wrist, the more you're using the protective muscle layer that protects the UCL. And so as you fatigue that muscle, you're placing the UCL at risk. So a person who throws more breaking balls, especially as you move up a level. So if you have a good breaking ball coming out of high school and you go to college and they're gonna increase your percentage breaking balls from 10 to 30, you're absolutely placing that ligament at more risk. And, and same thing going up a level, you know. So, yes, I think there's no question if you if you add more breaking pitches, you increase the risk. Does it place more stress on the ligament to throw more breaking pitches? Not That's not the point. The point is you're placing more stress on the elbow and fatiguing one of the protectors of that ligament. Yeah. And so over time, you are placing the ligament more at risk. A higher risk just in general? Yeah. Being part of that, uh, with what Dr. Andrews and you and, and Lyle Kane and everyone here at ASMI have done, including Glenn, Glenn Fleissig with Stop Sports Injuries Program and right. all that, do you think that some of those recommendations in terms of pitch count, number of innings, days of rest, are being just ignored because of the pressure to, hey, if you don't play year-round and play on this team, you're not going to make the fall team? Do you think those are being ignored by coaches and parents? Or what, what, no. what is your thought on that? I, I think they're mandated in some things. Like in high school baseball across the country, they're mandated. Okay. for high schools the problem a lot of the problems that we see is that in the summers there there's no rules now you hope that coaches and parents and players are doing all these things right but there's no stick the national federation of high schools said you have to do this and every state now has high school pitch counts little league baseball has pitch counts 
USSA does not. So the largest baseball tournament host company does not have pitch count rules. Really? They have inning count rules. What, what do you like think the, the impetus behind not following uh, they the line? Don't, they don't want to. It changes the game, and they don't want to do that. They're and, and I get it. Yeah. But I think at a certain age, you you got to have those things. Yeah. You know, and and having a three or four inning or six inning limit over a certain number of days. I mean, you could throw fifty pitches an inning, and we see that. We see kids. We saw before the high school rules came into play. We saw freshmen and sophomore in high schools. We, we saw older kids throwing 150 to 200 pitches in a game. That's <laughs> that's insane. beyond not yeah. okay. And it wasn't anybody trying to hurt. And the kid It's like, yeah, I feel great. You know, let's go. Till they don't feel good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of separately, we as sports medicine surgeons, obviously a lot of what we do focuses on a very specific body part or a very specific mm-hmm. injury. If you tear a UCL... You're not going to feel it doing most stuff right. outside of throwing. Right. Do you think from a philosophical standpoint that sometimes we're doing a surgery, I won't say the word unnecessarily is correct, but unnecessarily to allow someone just to do one specific movement? I tell people all the time, if you don't want to throw, you rarely need your UCL fixed. Uh, I have a guy that um, I did a reconstruction on this guy. He was 70, 68, 70, and he had been a mail carrier. And he walked a route, and when he retired, he wanted to fly fish. Okay. And he had torn his UCL years before, and he bought his fly fishing cabin, and he couldn't fly fish in his retirement. And he wanted his elbow fixed. And I fixed a 68-year-old UCL. I remember people looking at me. I remember Dr. Andrews asked me what I was doing, and I told him a story. This guy sends me a picture of the giant fish he catches every year, these fish he catches. He invited me to go fishing with him. Um yeah, I mean, I do think there are some people that just have pain, but those are rare. I think most of the people we're fixing this thing for, you know, some gymnasts, some wrestlers, things like that. But it's for activity. It's not for general everyday life. There are a lot of people walking around with no UCL that are perfectly fine. Yeah. And um, we, I think you're exactly right. We do this for them to be able to do what they want to do. You know, oftentimes we see a lot going through in terms of post-op outcomes, patients we treat, you know, managing failures or managing complications is tough how do you manage successes what do you take from you know the surgeries that went well and resulted in a good outcome how do you manage that or how do you how do you interpret that i think you have to take it humbly you know you were one part of that you you didn't do the rehab and you didn't do everything you didn't get them back on the field i think a lot of times in our profession we take a lot of credit for that i think it's important to always remember we were just one part of that and, and I love sharing in that when people bring that back to me and say, hey, thanks. You know, thanks for being a part of this. And I really focus on the fact that I am a part of it. Yeah. And I think it's really important to do that. You know, I didn't do that for you. I, I fixed it. And yeah, that's important. But you did it. And yeah. I flip it right back on them and make sure they feel the success for doing the majority of the work. Yeah. I did some of the work. Yeah. They did the majority. Well, I completely agree. I mean, I think... Th- you know, there's a, a significant importance to the quality of the surgery that's done. But if you look at the overall percentage of time frame that is required to come out of that with a positive result, yeah, we spent an hour, two hours, yeah. three max. Yeah. And yet you're looking at a course of six months or more to get back to playing at a high level. And so absolutely, our involvement is a fraction of the entire outcome course. So no doubt. I would agree. No doubt. I say this about sports medicine, and you've heard me say this. 
the, the definition in my mind of sports medicine is the shared urgency of the patient. If, if I'm not an athlete anymore, I don't, I don't wear a number on my back. You're much more athletic than me. If you hurt your knee tomorrow, you would want that thing fixed. You wouldn't want to give six weeks up and you would want that sucker fixed immediately because you would not want to be out from work, from play, from exercise, from whatever. And I have to match that urgency if I'm your sports medicine doc. Right. It doesn't matter if you're an attorney, a stay-at-home mom, a janitor, an athlete, it doesn't matter. My job is to match your urgency and create something that's going to get you back to what you want to do. So it is the shared urgency of the patient. Yeah, I and that's that. what we do better than any other yeah, profession. I would agree. I, I like that. I like that uh, thought a lot too. Throwers in your office when you see them, what are and I've heard these several times. But what what do you what do you give them in terms of pieces of advice for you know non-surgical injuries and surgical injuries in terms of throwers as far as how to maintain good arm care as to prevent injury, to make sure that they're healthy. I think one of the main things that we see, especially at the lower levels, is they're too enamored with the weight room. You you get the upper body lifting. They're doing Olympic-style lifting. You won't see major league guys doing a lot of Olympic-style lifting, pitchers anyway, in, in season especially. So I think that maintaining a long and loose upper body with, you know, you generate power in your back, your butt, and your legs. And, and your ability to turn, that's baseball's a rotational sport, whether you're hitting or throwing. But you don't get velocity from pecs and shoulder big deltoids and big biceps. You can lose velocity that way. So if you're tight up top, you're not going to throw the ball very well. Yeah. And if you look at baseball players that make a lot of money throwing a baseball, they don't look like Adonis up there. They no. may look like Adonis and they're back, their butt, and their legs, but... Man, they're not gonna. You're not gonna see big pecs and big biceps, and these guys don't look like gym rats. Yeah. And so I, I tell these guys, you you have to be a baseball player when it's baseball season. You can be a, a weightlifting freak and be a football. I mean, if you want to be a middle linebacker in football season, that's fine. But you got to be a baseball player in yeah. baseball season. They are different body styles, and you have to know what you're doing with that. And and you can't try to be a football player during baseball season. Yeah. Any more than you can try to be a baseball player during football season. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's where I see a lot of, especially at the high school level, um, people going wrong because there's a perception that the weight room is, is how you're going to make it work. I'm not yeah. downplaying the importance of fitness and weight room for baseball players. It's very important, but you got to lift like a baseball player. Yeah, very position and sport focused. Position and sport Exercise. focused, yeah. yeah. The other thing I think uh, I remember you saying, which I, again, say to my patients as well, um, is uh, don't throw on a tired arm. Do never, the worst thing you can do is throw with your shoulder fatigued. You know, there's so much data to support the idea that if your shoulder is not functioning at peak performance, you don't, you don't max out your external rotation. If you don't regain that and stretch that front side out and you're not ready to throw from a shoulder perspective, your elbow will take the brunt of that. So throwing with a fatigued arm or a not loose arm, the recipe for elbow disaster, shoulder disaster too. Yeah. Well, if that happens, yeah, we got a guy yeah, here for we, you. We can we can manage. We that. can fix that. But we, that's what we see a lot. I mean, we do. It's, you know how it is. It's every all day, all time. I feel like a broken record saying that <laughs> stuff, but it's, it's every day. Yeah. Uh, well, when you see the same stuff, like you said, volume, I mean, you oh end, up, end up repeating yourself. Um, moving on, something a little bit different, but also I think very very interesting. Um, I just remember as a kid turning on the TV, 
seeing the WWE, seeing these moves, guys, you know, diving from the top rope and then trying to, you know, repeat that move on your little sister and your right. mom finding out. Right. Um, you are the head team surgeon for the WWE. Uh, right. How did you get in and involved with that and, and what's your role with them right now? So my first involvement with them was covering them when I was a fellow and they came to town and they had an event and Dr. Andrews asked me to go cover it. And then they did it the next year and I started going just to be there. And I got to know some of the people and Dr. Andrews would operate on these guys all the time. And when Dr. Andrews had his heart attack in 2006, he was in the ICU and Dave Batista, the animal, ruptured his triceps for the third time. And I was up and cause he was in the ICU. And so I was, I mean, he was fine. He was post-op, but I was up Yeah. and they brought video cameras. His wife was in the room watching, um, Angelia and, uh, and, and I had to make him a new tricep. So I had to use a hamstring tendon, make him a new tricep wow. through bone tunnels. And yeah. it was very complex reconstruction yeah. and all on video and I'm up. And so I get to know Dave a little bit and I keep going to the WWE stuff. And this is before they really had a team physician. Then they hired a guy named um, Rios. Uh, he was a general surgeon to be their guy. And this was in the age of the steroid stuff. And they were trying to get rid of that. WWE very much wanted to get that out of their out of their world. And, and they brought in Rios to make that happen. And so he set up these standards for drug testing and things like that. This is back in the mid-2000s. Okay. And then he was retiring he was already retired once so he retired and they hired a bunch of uh, a couple of uh, sports medicine trained guys one of whom is still there chris amen is, okay. is the head ringside physician for wwe um fellowship trained sports medicine doc and now they've got four or five of them several of our former fellows and they travel all over the world with these guys they have the most amazing athletic trainers they have a medical staff that is commensurate with what they do because they put on a show and it's, yeah. these guys are freakishly good athletes and you can say what you want about whether it's planned ahead or yeah. you know whether they know the outcome. Well, that, that's one not, of the questions I was going to ask. It does is, not change the fact that when you yeah. jump off of a cage at 30 feet, yeah. that thing hurts and you're yeah. landing. You might break a rib. You're going to break some stuff. These guys break stuff all the time yeah. and they get hurt. The, the, some of the things that you see it's it's entertainment yeah. it's they're they're athletic actors and and they're really good at it but they do get hurt yeah. more frequently than you'd like to see yeah and sometimes the injuries are significant i mean we've seen some pretty big injuries yeah and um it, it's been great so i just kind of molded into that over time and i've been officially with them for the last i don't know probably five or six years but i've really worked with them for probably 15 okay and um they're an incredible company. They are customer service, um, working with the McMahon family and, and Triple H and Stephanie and those guys. They, they are incredible people. They're good business people, but they're a pleasure to work with. Um, they treat their employees like gold. Yeah. They are they are not at all difficult to work with. And the athletes um, within the WWE, we call them the talent, within the athletes themselves are among the most appreciative and humble and normal people to work with as athletes go i i think they're a joy to work with um as patients and as not patients yeah. they're so appreciative of what we do and um they're they're a great company to work with i've loved that part of my career yeah well i mean you kind of answer one of my questions you know what would you say to skeptics who say oh the wwe is fake and like you said i'm you know you simply watch 
not only just the physique of these athletes, every one of them, but watch what they do. And like you said, sure, some of the motions are part of entertainment. But when you're doing a flip off the top bar and landing on somebody, that takes athleticism and acrobatics. Well, I can tell you that the ladders are real ladders. The chairs are real chairs. There's nothing fake about those chairs. When they get hit with a chair, it's a chair. It's not a rubber chair. It's a chair. Um, You know, there's a lot in the TV part of that and how the angles are. And, you know, I remember a match at WrestleMania when when Triple H and and The Undertaker were fighting and they were trucking each other with these chairs and it's just one bat I mean they must have hit each other 50 times. And in the in the locker room afterwards they have train tracks on their backs. I mean it it is literally looks like they got run over by a train. And they're trying to compare who has more broken ribs. <laughs> and I think Undertaker won. I think he had 4. Oh my gosh. And and Triple H had 3. If I could trade places with any of them, the guy who um, I think is the most, uh, well, I think Triple H obviously is, is uh, just from a purely business person standpoint, and, and his very close friend, The Undertaker, they are, they are extremely close buddies. I mean, these guys, they're both in their 50s. They both look amazing. They both have great relationships with their families. Um, they're great entertainers, but they're good people. Like I enjoy just spending time with these guys. They're they're just nice people, and the Undertaker has the best entrance. The two of them have the best entrance. Also, I mean, when the gong goes off and the lights and the electricity and everything start flying around the ceiling, and everybody on the planet knows it's the Undertaker. That's a pretty cool thing. And the slow walk and the long trench coat and the look on his face and all this stuff, it's so good. And if you know him personally. You know that that's completely not who he is. I mean, he is a completely different person. And Triple H comes out on this, you know, Harley or something, and he's ripped and he's blowing water everywhere and his hair's all over the place. He's the nicest guy. He's a total just nice guy, you know. He won Jeopardy. He's a he was an art history major at the University of Vermont really? or something. <laughs> I mean, he, he he's he's just a that's good amazing. dude, you know. So that it's impressive to sit there and watch these guys do their thing. And and be a completely different person, and I love that about them that they can maintain. They don't get so caught up in themselves, which I think is probably valuable for us as orthopedic yeah. surgeons. You know, we play a role here, and and it's important, but it's it's still a role. It's a minor role. And those guys do the same thing. Yeah, these are real. Yeah. Um, Ronda Rousey broke her finger in the middle of the last match of WrestleMania yeah. last year. I mean, it's some of these things happen. We had. Uh, uh, Jimmy Uso tore his ACL in WrestleMania this year yeah. in the, early in the match and finished the match and I remember telling him that was an incredible match how, how did you how did you finish that you tore your ACL early in the match he's like man I just had to had to do had to do my thing yeah so they're they're impressive athletes yeah well I remember so when I was a fellow it was I think it was Finn Balor who dislocated his shoulder Finn and that was shoulder. that video is awful and you look at that and you're terrible. like he pulls That's, it back in himself he pulls it back in himself <laughs> I mean and and to see what the damage was on the inside, because right. we had to, it was an open surgery. We started, that? He on, yeah, tore part of his his conjoint tendon off, off, off the off the yeah. shoulder blade. Yeah, oh, wow. I mean, that was a terrible injury. Terrible but, injury. I mean, with obviously excellent surgery, and he worked with Kevin Wilk. Yeah, I mean, he just his re- recovery was phenomenal. Yeah, I, I don't know I if you're going to get him. to interview Kevin on this, but I want to say very publicly, yeah. a lot of the good things that happened to many of us, yes. myself, Doctor Andrews, Lyle, you, yeah. Kevin Wilk is largely responsible for a lot of that. He is a brilliant man and a good friend. And we owe him every bit of praise yes. and gratitude for what he does for yeah. us because he is nothing shy of the goat. He's a, he's a miracle. He's the goat. He's, and, he's amazing. And, 
In the world of physical therapy, Kevin Wilk yeah. is the goat. That's yeah. all there is to it. Yeah, we actually, I did get to talk to him. He was one of the first ones we talked okay, to. Good. So he gave us a lot of really good insight and it's, it's uh, he's, he's a special guy for sure. He is. Do you have a favorite story that you've had from some of the WWE uh, athletes that you can, <laughs> off the top of your head? Um, it was off camera. Stacy Keebler. So if you don't remember Stacy Keebler, she was six foot tall, blonde, beautiful WWE talent. And she was in a relationship on screen with Randy Orton, the okay. Viper. Mm-hmm. And Randy has been there forever. Randy's 6'4", 260, Big built man. like Adonis. If you want to know what Adonis looked like, look at Randy <laughs> Orton. So the screenplay, they call me into a production meeting, and it was in Birmingham. They were gonna, they were here, and Stacy's really funny. I mean, she, she's a comedian, too. Um, she's a really funny gal. They call us in this production meeting. There's probably six or eight people in there, and... Randy's in there and she's in there and and he's gonna get he's gonna ask apparently she's cheating on him on the show and he's gonna get down on one knee or in some way say you know I only have one question for you and she thinks he's gonna ask her to marry him and he gets up and does what's called an RKO which is the the knockout move that yeah. he has and he he knocks her out so she's gonna be knocked out and I'm supposed to go in the ring and check on Stacy and so I've never done this I mean I'm I'm that's not what I do, you know. Yeah. I'm there I'm like, okay, you know, I, whatever. <laughs> so, and they're like, well, we want you to, you know, make it look real. Like she's gonna be unconscious. I said, is she gonna be face up or face down? Because I mean, I'm a physician. I'm not gonna go move a face down person and make it look like I ruined her neck or something. So we got to do this right. So I start asking these questions. They're like, okay, well, she'll be face up. Okay, great. Is she breathing? And they're all looking at each other like, I don't know, is she breathing? I was like, mouth to mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Stacy, and it actually was Stacy who said it. She's like, "Am I doing mouth to mouth with this guy?" And everybody busts out laughing, and I'm like, "That's amazing." Tracy gonna be watching this um, <laughs> anyway. So the bottom line is, she fell, and the way she fell, she fell into the rope, and she fell too close to the edge, and it was on the other side of the ring from where I was. And so they, I had an earpiece in, and they said, "Don't go in, don't go in. We're just going to have her kind of shake it off." Yeah. And and so that's the way they, and they did it on the that's spur so of the moment. Funny. So, yeah. and and that's WWE, man. It, it happens on the spur of a moment. There's yeah. there's things that happen just like that. When yeah. Finn dislocates his shoulder, adjustments have to be made yeah, right there immediately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's such an incredibly well run experience. Oh, incredible. I, I remember watching it as a kid. Didn't watch it much, obviously, you know, past that time frame. But thanks to you got to go see a couple of these and I don't know all the talent as well because it's obviously shifted over the last 10, 15, 20 years, but everyone knows John Cena because mm-hmm. everyone knows John Cena. So you get right. in there and the next thing you know, you know, you're <laughs> half hour into this thing and you're up on your feet chanting either John Cena or Cena, 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 yeah. or you're chanting John, you know, Cena, Cena sucks. sucks. You're, you're on one side or the other, <laughs> but next thing you know, you're all into this and you can't, you can't help it because it's so entertaining. Yeah. And they are um, so entertaining yeah. and as people are so passionate about it. Oh yeah. Um, well, my, even if you're not, though, you know, I mean, I when I was in Chicago with my sisters, and they were, they happened to be there, and you got us tickets. Yeah, we got, yeah I remember. And my that. sisters have never seen it. You know, they're they're yeah. quite a bit younger. They got in there, and we're row six, and they were up on their feet, just oh, going yeah. at it, and they yeah. were loving it. And it's so, a blast. They yeah. they really are entertaining, and they're phenomenal athletes, and they know their audience. They know how to play to it. Mm-hmm. They're very talented uh, people. They're not the muscleheads yeah. that you think they are. They're very smart. A bunch of these people have advanced degrees. Um, one one of the girls, Maurice, I think she has two master's degrees and speaks three languages or something. Wow. I mean, it's it's crazy yeah. how smart some of these people are. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm thankful to you being able to yeah. cover it because I get to go, go check that out uh, yeah. when they well, come in town. So keep up. 
a few general things here and then we'll uh, kind of get towards a little wrap up and talk about some things that you know we really care about but um, <laughs> what's one of the worst sports injuries you've seen in your career uh, knee dislocations you know stuff like that I, I had a kid at Troy who had a uh, nerve out and a vessel out on the field and he had to have a vessel bypass and um, was done at Baylor and an X fix because we were playing in North Texas and um, he got it back. We fixed his knee and he so kind of like the, was it the to, UCF quarterback McKenzie. Yeah, same, same thing, idea. So. Um, same idea. Yeah, really, really just awful injury. Yeah. You know, you see things like uh, I had a guy to have a root avulsion, another Troy football player. So he made a tackle and he avulsed a cervical oh, wow. root off so his one, spinal one of cord. his nerves off yeah, of his spine. C5 nerve root avulsed off his spinal cord and he has never gotten any of it. I mean, he, oh he can't gosh. use his arm basically. Um, you know, you see things like what Alex Smith went through. Right. And, and I didn't have anything to do with Alex Smith's care, but I watched Robin West, who's the team doc for the Redskins go through that and yeah. what an amazing um job she's so good and to watch how involved she was and if you watch the documentary that, that yeah. was done on E60 with yeah. that you get the sense of how emotional it is for the physician and how engaged you are 100%. it's not just because it's a professional athlete you would feel that way about anybody right and that's what we do you know and there there are some people that you just remember i remember the names of those people that had those injuries and you remember the ones that are that are just awful yeah and and you do the best you can and yeah. um they they appreciate you though i do i do think that they hold us in a special place because we genuinely do try to do what's best for them yeah. all the time do you have any patient in particular that's probably the more memorable for just their personality or their injury or their ability to kind of come back from a difficult situation that pops to your mind um i have a couple um I have a couple, and then they're really not no, nobody anybody would know. Um, I have I have a patient who's in her mid twenties. She was a high school basketball player. She had a um, a problem with a blood vessel in the back of her knee, and we did an operation on her. She did great. Eight weeks later, she went back to play basketball, and it had a recurrence. She she blew the blood vessel again. We went back and operated on her, and this time she developed a postoperative nerve problem, which is called chronic regional pain syndrome or, or CRPS or RSD it used mm -hmm. to be called and has had 10 years of problems with this knee and multiple, she's probably had seven or eight more operations her resilience and and she finished she put her, she went to nursing school she works as a nurse she she functions she's incredible and every fellow has known her but I see her and I see how much it affected her and her family and I have a hard time walking away from her. I can't. Yeah. I can't give up on her. Yeah. And I basically know her as I as well as I know anybody. And I know that she doesn't when she asks me to do something, like or she has a question or she it's it's like I know it's coming from a place where she's miserable. I know she's in pain every day. And I know she makes it work. And I respect that. And that shapes you. Yeah. you know, she's one of those patients that shapes me and love her like she was my own kid and her family knows that yeah. very good with her family um those people stick with you you know and it's it's rewarding because you build that trust in that relationship it's frustrating because you wish you could help her and you share in her frustration but it's it's again it's what we signed up for you know right. you have to do it so um i have i have several of those you know people that i just you just get to know yeah you know and, and I think with those patients with the resilience that you mentioned, 
do you think that there's anything that you see in patients like resilience or any characteristics you think allow them to come through those situations better than others? Support from their families. You know, I think, you know, having a a circle around you, having a lot of faith. um, I have a lot of faith uh, and they, I think, are faithful people. I think that trusting in in um, in family and faith is important in situations like that. And um, I think it'd be tough to endure those kind of things without good support network and good background, good self-centered background. And they, yeah. those, you know, we always say God only gives you what you can handle and they can handle it. Right. You know, it's, they're, they're well set up to handle it. Yeah. You know, obviously, like you said, we're our, our ability to improve someone's, you know, well-being, function, whatnot is, is limited, not so much only to surgery. We have that coachability aspect, but aside from what you just mentioned, are there other things that you think that really kind of help patients or if, if you're about to go through a surgery, what things can you focus on to make sure that you maximize your opportunity to obtain a really good result? I believe that um, the patient's expectation is important. And I want them to expect perfection, but I also want them to understand that I am only capable of fu- fixing it in the moment that it's there. I can't give them the outcome they want. I can only fix the problem like a carpenter fixes a roof. What the house ultimately looks like is not in my, I can't determine that. And so they have to trust me to do my part to fix that thing, to treat that problem. But that's just one part of it. And so my ability to communicate that to them and engage them as a coach to be the patient that goes the distance and makes it happen it's that whole Jim Valvano thing. Yeah. I got to get the best out of you because my part of this is just one part of this. And you've got to own the rest of it. Now, I will stick with you and I will coach you and I will help you and I will give you every resource and I will stand behind you and encourage you. But I can't go to PT for you and I can't do the exercise at home for you and I can't wear the brace for you and I can't hold off from doing what you really want to do when you shouldn't until it's time. And I can't do those things. And so I think that that's where the initial relationship and the faith that they place in us, the trust that people place in us is so valuable to us. And I think that as surgeons, that's one of the things that we crave is the trust Mm -hmm. that people place in us. It can never be misplaced. You can't misplace that trust. And engaging in that process is what we at sports medicine docs do. So yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's the whole soup to nuts thing. Yeah, how how do you think it, I mean, I think it's tough to find that in a surgeon. How do you recommend to say family members or friends or anyone who calls you up who who are not here, who come to see you, how do you recommend or provide advice for them to go find someone who has that ability to provide that trust that they're not going to violate? What do you recommend in looking for a surgeon? I always say that number one, find somebody with lots of, you know, with experience or somebody who's done a lot of volume. That doesn't mean they've been in practice for 30 years. You've done more volume than somebody that's been in practice for 10 years. Okay. You've been here for three years, but you're in a high volume world. So you've done more than somebody that's been out three times longer than you. That's valuable. You've done more hip arthroscopy than some people do in a career. Yeah. That's valuable. You are somebody that I know values the trust. You are, and I've gotten to know you over years. I know people in the communities. You find the people that are good. You, you know at the hospitals you work at, you ask the questions. You know, what does this person do? What's their experience been? What was their training? You know, how much have they done? And, and somebody that's done 
5,000 of an operation probably knows it back and forward. Yeah. You know, and I would say I'd trust that person. I, I don't necessarily think that you have to be anything but a good person to be a good surgeon. I think you can be both. I think you can be engaging. Listen, there have been times when I've shed tears with my patients, you know, I hug my patients. We, we not now during COVID, but you know, I mean, it's yeah. Tracy, I didn't hug anybody today. I promise, <laughs> you know, I, I think that you have to engage. And if you hold yourself so aloof that you're not engaged on their level, sooner or later, somebody's going to have a problem with that. Yeah. And I just don't want to practice that way. It's my choice. Not everybody sees it that way, but I'm not yeah. going to practice that. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the things among others that kind of sets you apart from other surgeons? I think it's, that, I think it's something Lyle and I do, you yeah. know, the same way. I think we both are engaged in the people that we, um, we take on, you know, we want their success. Um, I think it's genuine. I think that's another quality. You've got to be genuine. You can't fake this stuff. You, you can't pretend it. It can't ever be anything but genuine. And if you can't impart that, if you can't make somebody feel that, you're in for a long run, yeah. you know, and, and I see you guys doing it and I know how genuine it is. Yeah. And, and I think that when we find partners and you know this cause you're here, our partners, they're all genuine people. Very all much. They're all very much engaged yeah. in the outcome of their patients. They are genuine. They are the real deal. And we, we managed to sort that out. Yeah. We haven't kept every person we've ever taken. Some people just didn't have it. And they weren't genuine and we got rid of them yeah you guys are we know how to pick that out yeah and I, I think anybody would i think you would too do you think that's something that's learned or coachable obviously you were the fellowship director you see a lot of talent come through and yeah. over 20 years of doing this you see a lot of fellows come through is that something that's coachable or can you learn that to a certain extent i think you can i think there's probably a limit to how long it's coachable um i think i think you get into habits and ruts and and, and things become commonplace and, and um, just becomes routine. So I think if by the time you get to be a fellow or maybe within the first year or two in practice, if you don't have it, probably never will. And I think we've had some fellows that they were in it for one reason. They went to medical school for the wrong reason. They wanna make a bunch of money and they wanna do this or they wanna see their name in lights or they wanna be on the sideline or whatever that's that's a byproduct of those things right. you know that can't be the priority that's a byproduct um and so we've seen we've seen some of those yeah i don't think that goes real well yeah. most of the time generally i think not. you know some people yeah, like that. generally that, that, not that doesn't go real well so for those who aren't aware of the the process of going through and training to become a surgeon then a specialized sports medicine surgeon can you explain the steps you go through from college to medical school that brings us to this point where we you know treat athletes sure absolutely so you know once you complete medical school which is really a, a little bit of a taste of all the specialties of medicine and a little bit of um, learning the language of medicine and how a hospital functions you go on to residency you apply an interview for residency in a specialty so in our case it was orthopedic surgery um, those are five-year programs most of them there's a couple six-year programs but it's minimum five I'd say 99% of them are five years you do your five years and it's a progressive responsibility experience. You, you learn um, how to operate, you learn how to use instruments, you learn how to do procedures, you learn how to diagnose things, how to interpret uh, testing and, and physical exams, how to make diagnoses and eventually indicate patients for surgery and then perform those surgeries. And, and over the course of your residency, you probably do a couple thousand operations and you're assisting and attending um, with those with a gradual more and more responsibility as you do it. A fellowship 
is a subspecialty training. So in the orthopedics, there are nine subspecialties. So a few of them are things like trauma, tumor, hand, uh, foot and ankle, sports, total joints, um, hip and knee, stuff like that, spine, pediatrics, um, et cetera. So you're doing an extra year of indentured servitude at low pay. And, um, but it's really a focus on that subspecialty. And, and so during that time, you're taking the basics that you learned in residency, because you got some of this in residency, but you're spending an entire year on that subspecialty. And on the sports front, it's not just the surgical and clinical stuff, it's the team coverage stuff. So a mandate of sports fellowships is that they have to provide experience of sports fellowship coverage. And so we, we do that. We, we cover all these teams. We go all over the place um, providing coverage and dealing with athletes and coaches and, and things like that. And so that's, that's the bread and butter of a sports fellowship, really. What do you think has, has taught you the most of, of being a fellowship director and being able to work every day with fellows and teaching them not only how to be a diagnostician in the clinic, how to operate, how to manage you know complications, but also how to manage successes. What have you learned so far, probably in the last 10, 20 years of, of managing fellows? Number one, fellows are a spectrum, just like any classroom has a spectrum of students in it and ability and communication skills and talent. We can't expect every fellow to come in the same, but we have to train them and get them to a place where they're safe and and functional and we have to give them opportunity and we have to love them you know we tell people you come here you're part of the family you know i'm going to spend more time with you than i spend with my family so i have to be engaged and engaged in your success i have to want you to be successful because you are and it's not because you're a reflection of me you are and that's important but i gotta want it for you I also, my priority is my patients. My, right. my patients are my number one priority. And if you learn that from me, you've learned a lot. If you learn how to make that connection with patients, you've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think the volume that we do clearly is a big part of that. You, if you can't learn here, then you can't be taught because yeah. this is volume city around here. And, yeah. and that's a good thing. The staff upstairs, our staff, everybody, you know, the ASMI staff, the, the people that we get to work with that show up every day to do our thing. I mean, our videographer is here and it's seven o'clock at night. Yeah. I mean, it's on, 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 a, last on, request, on a Wednesday. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is the, the people are committed to this stuff. And, and and so we have a team that works amazingly well together. We have Lisa Warren, who is yeah. our CEO, who I mean, you, ridiculous talent, yeah. right? You appreciate that stuff. When it, when it comes to fellows, you have to treat them like your children. They're not the same. And they're not always going to do what you want. And they're not always going to succeed at the pace you want. They're not always going to mature at the same pace. But you can't quit. And you can't give up on them. And you, even when they're done and they leave the house, you still got to take care of them. And you still got to support them. Whether they stay here in Birmingham or they go anywhere in the world, they're mine. And yeah. I have to treat them and I have to continue to be willing to help them yeah. with whatever they need. Fellows have gone through tough things. We've had a fellow go through a, a brain tumor. Yep. We've had fellows go through divorce. We've had a fellow lose a child. Um, you know, it, it's some of the worst things that happen in life. We've, we've had our fellows go through, our former fellows. Um, and we're there to support them. And we yeah. go through it with them, you know. And... Um, it's, it's just part of it. I don't think fellowship ever really ends. Yeah. I think of myself as an Andrews fellow, <laughs> and I think he thinks of me as a fellow. I definitely still you feel like a fellow. You definitely should feel like a fellow. 
And and I take that as a kindness yeah. and, a, and a good thing. The fact that Dr. Andrews cares enough to treat me like a fellow sometimes, yeah. it can be frustrating, but I know he, yeah. he means well. Yeah. And so I, I think it, it's rewarding, I will say that. Just like being a parent is rewarding, I get to parent six new kids every year. Yeah. And um, and I love that relationship, love it. Are there any, any things that you can you know speak to that over the last several years that they've taught you, uh, whether it's about yeah. surgical or literature or research or just interacting. I will say that that happens all the time yeah. because I can't keep up with everything. You yeah. know, I don't, I, I'm so busy. I can't keep up with everything yeah, well, all the time. We, nobody I, can. Nobody can. Yeah. And, and so the fellows always have new ideas. They come with things that they've seen because they come from different places. And so I have a perspective that's my perspective and they have six different perspectives. Right. And I get to see that every year and experience it. And they ask questions like, well, why do you do it this way? Well, why don't you do it that way? Well, we did it this way. And what do you think about this? And, and I get pinged with these kind of things all the time. And I love it because it makes me better. It also makes me think about what I do and, and be introspective and self-critical. Is there a better way? Is there a better way for me in the way in the system that I work in? I also have to teach the fellows that I do things the way I do. And, and it changes. You know, we've changed since you were a fellow. Sure. Things have changed some things we do things here because of the system that we work in if i change how i do it i got to make sure that i can still get the same outcome in the system that i work in right. and that system is so important if i change in a way that the system doesn't support it doesn't really matter if somebody else thinks it's great if i can't get the outcome i can't do it can't do it so that's awesome. Well, I've, I've really appreciated even just being around them for some of the, you know, interactions that I've had with them, whether it's, you know, kind of helping educate the first week we're here, kind of showing, showing them the ropes or having them scrub, a, you know, case here and there or just being yeah. part of the educational. I think it's phenomenal. Well, I'll also say that I think being fellowship director is a mid-career thing. Yeah. I need to gradually hand that off in the next probably five years. Yeah. I'm 52 I don't need to be the fellowship director if I'm still here doing this in my 60s. I yeah. need to be working with fellows. I need to hand that off yeah. because it, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of meetings and energy and um, and there's a lot of responsibility, but it's really for somebody in their 40s to 50s and uh, from, from my perspective. And so I'll be ready to hand it to you guys when <laughs> in, in the next few years. Lyle and I have really done it together. I, I have the title on some things but we've done it side by side every yeah. decision has been made between us yeah. as always we we've shared the responsibility even though it's it's my name on the thing i lost yeah. you know how this happened i lost a coin flip oh that's right so we were at dinner with andrews and he said you know i have one of you guys has to be the fellowship director because i'm moving to pensacola and we were at dinner with rob crabtree our, our then administrator and uh and and uh mr immel and lanier and uh and we said, okay. And he said, well, who's going to do it? And, and Lyle and I are sitting next to each other. And we're like, we got to go outside and talk about this. So Lyle and I get up. Everybody goes to the bathroom. Lyle and I get up go outside. And Lyle's, Lyle does Alabama. And, and that takes an enormous amount of his time. Yeah. And um, I knew that I had more time to do it. But I, there was no way it was going to be one of us. We were going to do it together. And yeah. we, would, we saw it that. We went outside and we said, look, whatever happens, we're going to do this together. But one of us has to do it. I said, look. I don't, I don't really want to do it. He didn't want to do it. So we flipped a coin. And I, I forget which one I was, heads or tails, but I won. He said, you're it. I said, no, I won. I get to choose. He said, no, that wasn't the deal. Whoever won got to do the deal. I said, no, no, no. Whoever won gets to choose. He says, okay, we'll flip again. Whoever, whoever gets it is the fellowship director. So 
or whoever whoever uh, I forget if we did it how, who chooses but anyway yeah. I lost again yeah so I ended up being the fellowship <laughs> uh, and the rest is history and we're here yeah we are. right moving on to you know slightly other <laughs> other odd topics off topic. um, you've obviously you know throughout your career been very involved in a lot of things sports medicine related uh, but over the last several years you got into something a little bit different and yeah. you started a distillery I did uh, a whiskey bourbon distillery here in Birmingham what yeah. what prompted that and. You know, tell us about about the whiskey distillery. I must have been ill with a fever. <laughs> no, um, I, I uh, we we grew up in Charlotte, as I said, and we always went to South Carolina for for vacation. We would go to Hilton Head and places like that. And Hilton Head was always our favorite. And so, 25, 30 years ago, my family and I and us bought a piece of land on a little island called Defusky, which is a great golf course. This, this club called Hig Point. You take a ferry over this island, and it's been our vacation place for the whole family for for twenty years guy moves in from Kentucky who had been in the hospice industry and he he wanted to uh, he had family in the bourbon industry his name's Tony Chase so Tony uh, opened a rum distillery uh, on the island and called it the Defusky Island Rum Company and so I spent a lot of time drinking an inordinate quantity of his rum on several occasions and and got to know this guy pretty well he had a shoulder problem too and you know we got to know each other pretty moved in right down the street from us so at one point we thought about becoming his distributors in Alabama so my dad and me and a couple other guys became rum distributors. Okay. My dad was kind of bored and yeah. he had retired. And so we got this rum distributorship and we started distributing to Fusky Island Rum. We got it on the list in Alabama, which was kind of a feat. Yeah. And we got it into some restaurants. We had it in Perry's. Okay. We had it in a bunch of places. And uh, all told over about a three-year period, I think we made about $5,000. But we were loving it. We had a yeah. great time. So we were making trips back and forth to Defusky. And one time Tony said, uh, you know, Birmingham's like the largest distillery, like largest city in North America without a distillery. And I was like, hmm, okay. Challenge accepted. So I started <laughs> looking into it, you know. Yeah. And my chemical engineering background, I had brewed my own beer for 30 years. So yeah. this is something that had fascinated me. And um, we started looking into it. And sure enough, Birmingham really wanted this. It was something they were ready for. The mayor's office, the development office, everybody. And so we were getting a lot of encouragement from the city. And we started down the path of looking into it. And next thing you know, we're renting a building, building it out, buying equipment, hiring distillers, getting investors. What ended up being what would later be a $7 million project, we undercapitalized it, which I guess is pretty common. But um, we've put out five spirits, a whiskey, a blended weeded whiskey, which is a lot like Weller. Yeah. Which is my favorite, which yep. is what I wanted it to be like. Uh, a vodka, it's a wheat-based vodka, so it's a sipping vodka. We put out a gin, which is a um, California-style gin, which is more of a West Coast-style, I guess you'd call it. It's it's a floral, citrusy gin, not a dry, London-style dry gin. Okay. Um, we put out a rum, which is a molasses and brown sugar-based rum, and we just put out a blue agave, yeah. which is ridiculous. And, and all these things are made on this still that is, if I could describe a Ferrari to you, that's what this still is. It is an absolute ridiculous machine. Yeah. And we hired Mario Andretti to drive this thing. So yeah. we, we have the right people. I would say that um, we, we opened a restaurant with it. We needed a front. So all we went around the country to all these distilleries. We went to 50 different distilleries, a bunch of them in Colorado and all over the place. And everybody told us, you have to have a retail outlet. You've got yeah. to have a front of the house. Yeah. And so we opened this kind of bar, tasting room, restaurant thing with no real intention of being a restaurant. We wanted to be just the front of the house, but we had to have a kitchen because yeah. you can't pour booze down people's throats and not have food. 
And so we end up with this bar. We end up with this really nice space. We spent a lot of money building this really nice space out. And I would say that we're, a, we're about a year in. We're not quite a year in open. I would say the response from Birmingham has been okay. Yeah. I would say it has not been what I expected it to be. I think people are really fond of our spirits. Yeah. The, the spirits are ridiculous. Make our yeah. own beer. Beer's been great. The food's been great. Yeah. We're in a town where there's a lot of competition for restaurant. And I think we have a little bit of an identity crisis in terms of what we are. Yeah. And I don't think people know what we are. We also have not had a lot of money to spend on marketing. And so running a business that is really five businesses, it's a merchandise shop, it's a tasting room, it's a bar, it's a restaurant, it's a distillery, um, it's an event space, yeah. six businesses. Um, and I don't run it. I don't manage it. I'm chairman of the board. I have 42 investors and... I own about a third of it. So I end up dealing with a lot of it and I work with the CEO and the managers and, and work with the board, but I don't run it and I can't because I'm not egomaniac enough to think that I yeah. can. I don't know anything about running that kind of business. So we've hired people to do it and I think they've done a good job. I think we've made some mistakes. I think we've done some things that I wish we could undo, Yeah. but I still believe that in the end we will be very successful. I think we will ultimately be acquired probably somewhere in the four to seven year yeah. range. And that's the goal. And I think that's going to be the yeah. goal. Um, but I think we've brought something to Birmingham that Birmingham needs and still needs. And I, we yeah. hear that all the time. Like, this is great. We, we love that you're here. The bars and restaurants love what we're making. The quality of what we're making is silly good. Yeah. It is. And it doesn't matter where we take it. That yeah. We could take it out of the country. We take it to California. Everybody we talk to, we have had master distillers from Jim Beam and places like that come down and tell us, this is so good. Yeah. You must keep going. Yeah. Now COVID hits. Yeah. Nobody's in a restaurant and a bar. Yeah. You know, it's been a frustrating thing, but very rewarding at the same time. People look at me and they think I'm at the top of the food chain of that business. And and I guess in a way I am because I started it and I own the majority. I'm the highest percentage ownership, but I don't run it. I can't. Yeah. I, I have a day job. I, yeah. I can't. I've done the best that I can. I think there are things I would definitely do differently. Yeah. But in the end, I feel like we are on a good trajectory. We are in a race with just the finances of it. Sure. And the question that comes to me is, am I going to have to financially support this thing, this child, yeah. to get to success? I, I have no doubt it will get to success because, again, the quality of it is so good. Yeah. We've had people talk about putting this in places I would never have thought. We got asked about Walmart this past week. Really? In Arkansas. Yeah. The the guy who provides Walmart with, with liquor loves our stuff so much he wants to put it in Walmart in Arkansas. Yeah, they got a pretty uh, big following. Okay, that'd yeah. be great. Yeah. But, you know, making those kind of things happen, is it's the devil's in the details. So yeah. I am not concerned about the quality of what we're doing. I think ultimately we've brought something that will be very successful. It's just a matter of getting it. Yeah. And do I have the stomach? Because ultimately, I think it's going to fall on me and yeah. the investors. Do the investors and I have the stomach for what it's going to take to get it there? Sure. And I don't know. I, I think there will be some that don't, and, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I don't blame them, especially in these times. The, absolutely don't blame them a bit. We have one investor who lost his job. I mean, absolutely, man. I get yeah. it. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to do more either. Yeah. But I'm not anywhere close to the point where I'm willing to let it fail. Sure. I'm willing to put in whatever it takes to make it succeed. Yeah. So I'm looking at this from a Jim Valvano perspective. 
I'm going to take this three star thing and make it a five star thing. Yeah. And and I'm well, going to make that happen. Especially when you have good product already. Yeah, we've you know? got great product, but it relies on us getting it out there. Yeah. And it's the that's the daily work that I can't do. Yeah. You know. And and that's the point that I have to try to guide and coach because I can't do it myself. Sure. I don't have the skill set nor the time. Yeah. But right now you're producing a whiskey, correct? We are producing all of versus what's the difference between a bourbon and is that somewhere where you're trying to go or So all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. I actually yesterday okay. tasted our bourbon. We okay. put our bourbon in barrels starting a year ago yesterday or okay. Monday. So Memorial Day we put our first bourbon in a barrel. Okay, so one year anniversary. And one year anniversary just happened and I tasted it yesterday. And it's young. But it's really good. There's a lot of cinnamon in there. There's a little bit more smoke than I want, and that's going to mellow out. Okay. Um, we're going to let it go another year at least to make it a straight bourbon. We also have the Alabama heat. So we get an age that is going to be more than the chronologic age because gotcha. of the heat that we can apply. Kind of accelerates more. that. Oh, my gosh, yes. So that's why Taiwan, you know, Kavalan in Taiwan is like the best really? whiskey in the world right now. And it only ages two years, but it's 117 degrees on the coast of Taiwan. So that'll make it go quick. Yeah, it makes it go quick. Yeah. So heat makes a difference. And yeah. that warehouse where we have it in Alabama, it gets up there to 110, 115. Yeah. So we're going to get some really good age off of that. We also had our first uh, bourbon that we, we we sourced a bourbon, and then we've been finishing it in a rum barrel. Okay. So we bought some rum barrels, and it's been in there for six months. So I had that yesterday. And also our rye yeah. that we've been finishing in a sherry barrel. Interesting. So we're going to release both of those in the next month. Are you really? Yeah. I want to pick one up. And then the bourbon, our own, the bourbon we made from from grain. Yeah. That'll be next summer. Okay. So summer of twenty one, we'll put out our first uh, bottles of our, our our batches of bourbon. Gotcha. And explain the difference between the whiskey, yeah. the bourbon, the straight so bourbon. Bourbon, um, to be bourbon. So bourbon is the American spirit. It was declared that by Congress. So in order to be bourbon, it has to be made in America, just like champagne has to be made in France and tequila has to be made in Mexico. Bourbon must be made in the United States. It must be at least 51% corn. It has to be aged in a new white oak barrel. It must enter the barrel at no less than 125 proof. Okay. And so most people put their bourbon in the barrels at 125 to 130 proof. Most people use a 53-gallon barrel, which is the big ones. And bourbons are anywhere from 51 to 100% corn. Ours is 60% corn 30 percent wheat and 10 percent malted barley okay the wheat mellows it which i like so our our bourbon is going to be more of the vanilla caramel cinnamon type of flavors the warm tones they Mm -hmm. call it not peaty mossy smoky you know it's going to be more it's more of the warm tones which is what we were searching for the barrel obviously makes a difference yep um and it has to be made as bourbon from the beginning so you can't take corn and wheat and mix them together later and call it bourbon. Got it. You got to make it as bourbon on day one, put it in the barrel as bourbon on day one and call it bourbon. So that's why our whiskey, which is 70% corn and 30% wheat, can't be called bourbon. It's a blended whiskey, not a bourbon because it was made as corn and aged as corn and wheat and aged as wheat and then blended later to become our product. Gotcha. And you think that's going to be the cornerstone of all the liquors or do you think that uh there's one that maybe i don't know i think the bourbon will be i think the bourbon will be the cornerstone um we'll let some of it go a lot longer yeah we'll let some go three years so in order to call it straight bourbon it's got to go two years minimum in the barrel so that's a federal distinction the ttb mandate anything under two years you have to put an age statement on okay so we're gonna go two years at least and we'll probably have some barrels that go five to ten years um 
and those will be more special release type of things. We'll probably do a barrel proof release. You know, it'll be 130 something proof, which is, you know, that'll, you got to water that down a little bit. That'll hurt you. So, um, yeah, I think we'll do, we'll do all those things. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear the update because, you know, as a fellow, I, all I heard at the beginning was really just this idea and it was so cool to see everything evolve from concept yeah. to, you know, breaking ground. I mean, I saw the, the distillery in, in the background when it was an old garage and when it was an old antique shop and now just to see what you've done, it's been, it's pretty impressive. Well, so. and, and Mike's an investor too. So I, yeah. I have to say thank you, Mike. Oh, Mike's been a big supporter and yeah. uh, Mike and his wife, Jenny, and his wife is on our board and. Um, they've been huge supporters of Dread River. And, um, you know, it, it's been a really rewarding experience. Starting a business from scratch and being an entrepreneur is something that I think everybody dreams about. I think it's still dream more than nightmare. Um, there are some days where it's a little bit more nightmare <laughs> than dream. But yeah. um, I think that's probably true for every business. But I have the stomach to see it through. And, yeah. and I have to tell myself that. You know, when things aren't necessarily going the way I want them to, I have to remind myself that I have the stomach for this. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it'll be worth it. Yeah. Well, I think so too. I mean, you know, you trust in a good product and yep. focus on that and we'll go from there. But to. I'm excited about I it. Have to. As we wrap up, any last thoughts, questions for our audience, for any, anything else that you, you know, think we missed on or, you know, a career in medicine, anybody who's watching this that thinks they might want to be a physician. I think Mike and I would both tell you um, is is to us the most rewarding thing that we yeah. can do. It's like being a parent in a lot of ways, and I think that's very rewarding. I, I tell people that if you wouldn't enjoy being a coach, you probably shouldn't do this kind of work because if you don't see yourself coaching kids or people, don't become a sports medicine doctor. Maybe don't become a doctor at all because that's what a lot of medicine is, especially this part of it. And um, I'm, I'm proud of what we as a collective clinic have accomplished in Dr. Andrews' name yeah. and in his image and in his profession and what he's what he's built here. So I'm proud of what we've been able to continue. And all you guys, I look, I look forward to the next 10 or 15 years and seeing what happens. But I'm, oh, yeah. I'm very confident in the direction that well, we've, we've set this thing off on. We're, so. we're very excited. And yeah. uh, you know, we've had some good mentors. And you know, I want to thank you for spending the time. <laughs> sure, I know on a sure. Wednesday afternoon, we Absolutely. typically like to get out of here because we got busy days the rest of no the week. Problem. But um, I appreciate it. And i got to go prep for the boards. There you go. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Never ends, right? Never ends. Well, I'm 52 and I got to take the board. Still taking again. tests. Oh yeah, gosh, taking tests ends. my whole life. Well, again, uh, here with Dr. Jeff Dugas. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, man. Um, I appreciate and it. this is the Victory Over Injury Podcast. Thank you very much. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time. Be well and take care. Goodbye. On the next episode of the Victory Over Injury podcast. Dr. Brett McCabe is a licensed clinical psychologist with a PhD in clinical psychology from the Louisiana State University. And his passion is facilitating the optimal mindset to win the day, the game, the recovery, and this game we call life. Is there a particular athlete that you have seen go through the injury process that just knocked out of the park for some reason that was above and beyond other people that you've seen? When Kenyon Drake broke his leg, he had a tremendous response. And then we returned to the field and had a great year and then broke his forearm. Kenyon was somebody who I thought did a brilliant job from a stance of taking what was in front of him, possibly very catastrophic injury, and working through the frustrations and anxieties that go with it. Your functioning goes from 100 to zero immediately. You're gonna go under surgery. You just got isolated from the team and what you norm is no longer normal. Well, then what's the problem? 
we have to get better into the communities to help them understand that mental health issues are normal. Mental wellness is something that we should all do every day to protect ourselves as much as we do to watch temperature. You know, what are the things that we do from a sleep standpoint? What are the things that we do about a self-care standpoint? That's what we're there for. We're as integrated with the team as anybody else. Whatever we need to do to understand that struggle is the norm, it's not the abnormal. And then how do we manage the struggle to take it down a notch or two helps. The drama that we bring to circumstances is usually the problem, not the problem. Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.